Welcome, Remington Steel fans. This is Steel Watching, and I am Eric. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Sarah. I am also one of your hosts. See, no funny pun there. Oh. <laughs> new, new season, new me. Oh, wow. I don't know if we can Not handle really. that. Not really. Yeah. Well, it is a new season. Season two, episode one. Premier Yay! episode of the season, Steal Away With Me. It's a supersized, double-sized episode, so it's it's like McDonald's, you know, supersize me. Or any portion size in an American restaurant compared to anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> my proportions and my portions. <laughs> yeah, never mind. We'll go somewhere else with that. <laughs> uh, anyway. It's double, the, it's double the value is what I'm saying. More bang for your buck. More me to love. <laughs> oh no <laughs> anyway steal away with me first aired september 20th 1983 it was written by michael gleason and directed by seymour robbie seymour seymour now interestingly enough the online information i found on this episode indicates that even though it's a single episode was written as a single episode Released as a single episode, it actually has two separate episode production codes. So huh. one for the first half, one for the second half, which is weird because I thought that it was done on per episode basis. But maybe it's done on a, you know, if it's a one yeah. hour show, they assign a production code for each hour, even if it's double episode. I don't know. But anyway, that's the way they did it for whatever I'm reason. I'm assuming that is, I'm assuming you're right because at this time and all the way up until I'd say streaming became a thing. Mm -hmm television networks were pretty much a slave to the schedule and the where you could how how many minutes an episode could be in the time slot so that makes sense right yeah so for the episode synopsis i did something a little bit different than we normally how do how dare you oh no it's not totally different because it's still coming from judith's book steel loved after all these years but it's not the tv guide listing and it's not the production okay. summary. It's the DVD description. Because <gasps> I found the TV guide and the production. Well, the production description was way too long. It was TV, super long. Yeah. I looked yeah, at the, it. <laughs> the TV guide listing was okay. But there was something about the DVD description that I liked better. And I think you'll spot it early on. Sure. It goes like this. Laura and a strangely reluctant Remington Steel <laughs> head south of the border after the body of a murdered Mexican boy and a tuna fish full of diamonds ends up on Laura's doorstep. I like the phrase or the term reluctant Remington. Yes. Because yes. more, more alliteration for one. Well, it is, but it's also, it, it, it highlights the fact that this is a problem. It's not just, yep. oh, we're going to go to Acapulco and have an adventure. It's, no, we have a problem right out of the yep. gate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the only thing I don't like about the description is that there's no mention of Mildred because she's such a big part of it. Yeah, that is in the TV guide listing. Yeah, it is. Uh, unfortunately, I think the TV guide listing kind of 
reveals a little bit too much in that sentence because it it reads. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and read the whole TV guide listing. Yeah, so yeah, anybody who hasn't it. seen it. <laughs> The second season opener finds Laura and Remington in Mexico after a tuna stuffed with diamonds and wrapped in an Acapulco newspaper is dropped on her doorstep by a dying man. As a deadly smuggling conspiracy emerges, they're abetted by Mildred Krebs, an IRS auditor dogging Steele. It mentions Mildred, mentions that she's yeah. an IRS auditor, mentions that she's dogging Steele. But I just, the deadly smuggling conspiracy, I, that's just, that's too much. It just gives away yeah. too much, I think. I think, I think, and it, I could speculate here that TV guide synopses were meant to make the viewer want to watch the episode, right? Because we didn't right. have the internet. And so I'm guessing, and, and here, this ties into sort of my overall thoughts for this episode as a whole, that they were going for broke in the sense that this episode is way more action-packed it's Mm -hmm. basically a bond audition for pierce brosnan it's the first episode that they filmed on location the budget's up like all of this is meant to be it's shinier it's bigger Mm -hmm. it's flashier this is the new season so Mm -hmm. i'm guessing that this deadly conspiracy was meant to make people go oh you know this is not just uh, what we are uh, the goofiness that we had in season one. They're going for more action, more excitement, I guess. I don't know. It's Romancing the stone season five, Remington steel. This is the yeah, first yeah. hints of, I, <laughs> exactly. I wasn't going to bring it up yet, but this yeah, is the yeah, first yeah. hints no, of no, that. No, no. I agree <laughs> with you. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> because it really does change the tone of the show because it moves away from being just um, a comedy that has a, a puzzle. And, you know, the concept was Laura's a private detective that we're using to turn the genre on its head. And it's not about action. It's not about the the guy coming in and rescuing the girl. It's she's the brains. And as she said in the the first season. Yeah. But as she said in the first season, it takes more bronze than brains or more brain than brawn. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Other way around. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this 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 episode and from here on out we kind of shift back more toward the traditional yeah. detective show in that sense which uh, you know and th- the next thing i had in my notes here that ties directly into this conversation mm. is the new opening title sequence hate it yes. hate it hate it I, and again i have written here <laughs> i understand they're trying to change the tone of the show sophisticated to adventurous but this isn't the a team or magnum pi that opening sequence is a Magnum PI or an A-team opening sequence. It's not a Remington Steel opening sequence. Okay. So I'm going to take the opposite end of this. Oh, of course you do. <laughs> yes. Well, you have to keep in mind that when I first saw it, I saw I started with season five. I know five, you did. I know you did. Right. So the opening sequence in the theme song was the first thing I saw. And I am a big fan of a theme song. I one of the things that streaming has killed and and sort of this new era of ultra serialized television has killed is like that theme song that you'd get where you'd get all the faces and the clips from the episodes and you'd sort of see a preview and it was catchy and whatever. I love that. I'm a huge fan. So at one point it was my ringtone. (laughs) So (laughs) when I when I finally saw the first season. The monologue, I was not keen on it, and it's I've grown to appreciate it, and I realized why it was there in season one. It was there as a way of explaining to the viewers, 
if they miss that first episode, here's what's going on. This is what the show's about. But my guess is that by season two, they assumed, okay, everybody knows the score and this is going to get irritating. And after 22 episodes of hearing that same monologue, I would be getting irritated too. (laughs) So I'm thinking that they had this, they felt they had to switch it up. So they took out the monologue. Now I will say that I'm not as big a fan of the visuals of the season two opener as I am of when it gets to three and it goes forward from mm-hmm. there, that the, the whole them sitting in a movie theater, watching themselves. I think that's silly and goofy. Yeah. And, and that's really, I, I mean, I, I do miss the theme song and I will call it a theme song from season one. Yeah. I yeah. much prefer it over the season two, but I don't have a, a, a real issue with the music on the season two opener. It's again, as you said, it's the visuals because they changed it over to this Magnum PI style titles. So, yeah. and you know, you, you were talking about theme songs and, and such and how they've gone away from them and how the, sh- the theme song, it used to be kind of set the tone for the show. Yeah, exactly. And what, a lot of younger people are not necessarily aware of is the fact that back in the day, <laughs> get off my lawn, kid. Uh, oh, back in, hello, fellow kids. <laughs> back in the day, TV theme songs were top 40 hits. Yeah, yeah. The theme in the to, UK, sometimes they still are. Like, yeah. The UK is weird. Well, <laughs> uh, the one that... Um, there, there were a couple, but the one that most immediately comes to mind is the theme to The Greatest American Hero. Oh, yeah, and yeah, 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 it, yeah. It was a huge hit. So, it's a great um, song. Oh, the Rockford Files was, was not as big a hit, but yeah. it, was, it was also a hit. Uh, well, and sometimes so, yeah. they, they used actual songs mm-hmm. as theme songs. Like I'm th- Smallville, for example, used that song, Save Me, by, um, oh, the, the band is out of my head right now, but it was a song. It was a radio song that they took and they used for the show. And Angel, the series, used a show or a, a song called um, Sanctuary by a band called Darling Violetta. So, and Bones did it with uh, their theme. And so it, it wasn't unusual to take a song that was already a song and basically buy the rights to it and use it for for yours. Dawson's Creek did the same thing with I Don't Want to Wait by Paula something or other. Like there's a bunch. So yeah. this I but, I like the, the the tune. I'm just partial to the tune. I, and mm-hmm. and season three, the theme will get there, but I, I liked how they cut out that whole movie theater bit and just went with, okay, we're gonna show clips the graphics, from the episodes. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. the difference between the theme songs though is is where what you're talking about in some of these series is where they take a song that's already either a hit or yeah. is from an established artist that's already been recorded and released and incorporate yeah. that as their, their theme versus a song that was written specifically as the theme for the show, right. which becomes a hit. So yeah. True. Uh, yeah. There, a, there a, is a good a theme song can transcend the episode or the show. Absolutely. So, yeah. But anyway, I just had a couple of other thoughts on this because okay. I I both love this episode and I have serious issues with this episode. And I think it's wrapped <laughs> up and, and we'll get there. It, don't get me wrong. This is not going to be me bashing the episode the whole way. But there's just some elements of it that I feel their characters are changed significantly to accommodate for the tone. And now this is, it's nothing new that, 
in season one, we had various episodes that were direct homages to specific films. We had North by Northwest. We had The Trouble with Harry. We had The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We had The Sting. And these episodes basically were essentially like the plot of those films, but they'd incorporated the show into it. And those episodes were done really well in the sense that they didn't change their characters to fit the plot. Their characters were still more or less in character. But there's Mm -hmm. parts of this episode where I feel like they were going so heavily for James Bond. And it's, I, there's no guessing it. This is what they were doing. I don't right. think they were doing it specifically to push Pierce as like, oh, here's your Bond. Look at this episode. But I definitely think that in playing homage to classic films, they thought, oh, okay, we'll do James Bond. Why not? And there's parts of this where I feel like their characters get sort of like put to the side because it doesn't fit what they want with the plot. And I, yeah, so there's there's but there's elements of it that I just love. And so it's very different. There's a tone change. And there's some stuff with Murphy and Bernice that we'll get to that really bugged me, but mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I I don't remember I don't remember the anything about the connection between Brosnan and Bond at this point. I, no, I don't No, re- there wasn't I, any. I just don't yeah. remember a whole lot of of stuff about the show outside of the show from that time, but yeah. I'm going to bet even if it wasn't out there in the public awareness, I'm going to bet that somewhere in the Hollywood awareness, somebody had drawn a connection between Brosnan and bond. Now, if they were, it may have just been, Oh, this guy looks like he, he would be in line to be James Bond someday. Just one of those off-the-cuff, random comments that somebody makes and somebody else picks up on. And so I don't know what all was swirling around in the Hollywood thinking at that point, but I'm going to bet that somebody somewhere drew even a tenuous link between Brosnan and the Bond character or a Bond actor or well, being his- a Bond actor. And they said, well, let's, t- let's use that to promote our show. <laughs> well, his first wife, Cassandra Harris, was a Bond girl. Right. For about 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she knew the Broccoli's. And apparently she, no, I, I guess she maintained like she knew them because she, she was the first, she introduced him to them. I don't know if it was this early. Uh, it might have been a little bit later, but she definitely was the one pushing for him to get an, you know, an invite or a, a meet and greet or whatever. Um, so it could just be that connection or it could be something else, but you're right. I think definitely the, the, he had the look 100% had the look. And in the rarer sort of serious moments of the first season, you could see that he was capable of doing that, Mm -hmm. of that anger, that sort of coldness that, and and that funny quippiness that he's very, very good at. Um, So I just think that this opening season was a mission statement. It was, kind of outlining to the viewers what the show was capable of, the direction it was going in. And they, they upped the game in a lot of ways and they, it's really good. And some ways that I think harmed the characters in this opener. And I will get there when we get there. Yeah. But I just wanted to put we'll it out there. there. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get started into the episode. Sure. And just, I'll throw this out there as we get started into the episode that, I'm going to take the first half. You're going to take the second half of it. So if somebody's listening to this and they wonder, have they lost their minds? Are they confused? No, we're not confused. It's just, (laughs) 
we know what we're doing. It's just we're not sharing that with you. <laughs> Do we know what we're doing? Well, let's, let's go with that. Sure. We know what we're doing. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> let's go with that. Sure. Okay. It opens up with a series of bank vaults being blown open and a black gloved hand opening drawers and removing large quantities of diamonds. And we see that it happens in Cairo, London, and Amsterdam in the sequence. Then we're told it's San Diego. It's night. An unidentified man is running through the train yards. He's carrying a package, something wrapped in a newspaper. <laughs> I'm sorry. This I'm is the atmospheric silly. version. He's setting the, <laughs> setting the scene. This is new season, new us. It's going to be more yes. dramatic. Yes. Anyway, he stops <laughs> and pulls out what we see is a map with directions to Casa de Laura Holt at 4024 Cantwell. And the only 4024 Cantwell I found in my map program is not in California. It's in also, Sneedville, Tennessee. <laughs> so shout out to Sneedville, Tennessee. <laughs> it starts out in San Diego. Mm-hmm. That's not that close to LA, if no. I recall. It's like no. three hours drive. Yeah, it's it's a ways away. Because we we did it. We drove from from San Diego to LA. So did he? Did he? He got there pretty fast. Hitchhikes? I, I guess. Yeah. See, that's that's the that was the part that kind of confused me. Now I can understand San Diego. It's right on the Mexican border, or, or very yes. close to it. Yep. No, and it so is. Some, I think so. Somebody coming over would, even if they were going to Los Angeles, they would go through San Diego. So yep. that part makes sense. And San Diego is a big port city, and we do discover later that he came into San Diego on a ship. So that yeah. part kind of makes sense, but. Yeah, it, it's We just it's don't a see the confusing. transition from him like getting from San Diego to LA because you're right. I I walked over the border when I was in San Diego. We literally walked from where we were staying over the border mm-hmm. into I think it was Tijuana mm-hmm. and I think if I'm right and then walked back. So you can definitely do that. Right. But it's yeah, it's quite a drive to get to LA. So we should have yeah. he could have traveled by map. We could have had like a little you know how they do that in the movies where they show you the mm-hmm. map and they, yep. we could have had that just Indiana to tell Jones. the viewers, yeah, travel by map. We could have had that just to tell us that he, he did go to, cause then it makes you think, Oh, Laura doesn't live in San Diego. What's, how yeah. is he? Yeah. They used some shorthand here. That was a, maybe a little bit too short. Yeah. 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 So anyway, he's, he's looking at this map and then soon he's confronted by a car that just out of the darkness turns on its headlights into his eyes. He tries to get away, but the car follows him, and he is then confronted by a second car that turns on its headlights right into his eyes. And, of course, as the cars close in on him and each other, he takes off running an opposite direction. Unidentified men jump out of the cars and pursue. He tries to hide. He's caught by one of the pursuers, but he punches him and manages to get away, or so he thinks. The pursuers spot him and begin shooting at him. And again, this is a problem because he's in San Diego. He gets shot, and then later he dies. Or is he now in holes. LA, and we just we just didn't see him getting front? Like, yeah, I mean, see, there's there's some shorthand yeah. here. Something's missing because you get shot three times in the back. You're not going to travel from San Diego to LA and and no. still be carrying a dead fish. And you know, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> 
Anyway, and it's in this scene that we have the first of several very James Bond-esque musical cues. I was just going to say, he is also confronted by the James Bond theme, which I'm baffled they didn't get sued for. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe somebody a, knew somebody and, and they were able to get away with it. It's a change in like one note. Cause it's like it, the register goes down instead of up mm-hmm. when it goes the, I don't want to sing, but you know what I'm talking about? And yeah. it just, it's, you're watching it going, it's, how'd they get away with this? It's slightly changed, but it's so close that it's for somebody who doesn't sit and actually just, compare it and and, and analyze yeah. it you you wouldn't know that it's different because no, you really that, wouldn't. it's that close yeah so maybe it was that connection to the broccoli family that got them an okay or something it or could be got them a pass yeah. at least got them a pass but yeah <laughs> very very much uh, almost ripped off anyway so then we jump to laura's house we hear the doorbell ring 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 Ring, ring. Laura, Laura comes out of her bathroom and she's wrapped in a towel with a towel around her head, approaches the front door, chastising her maid, Maria, for forgetting her key again because she's talked to her about it before. But, of course, she doesn't get to finish the admonition because when she opens the door, she sees what turns out to be our earlier mystery man, complete with a newspaper-wrapped package collapsing on her front porch, complete with those three bullet holes in his back. Then we jump to the corridors of the Century Plaza Towers office building, home of the Remington Steel Investigations offices. The elevator door opens and out walks an older woman. The Mildred theme. She is a woman on a mission. Yep. Oh, do not get in front of her because she will run you over. <laughs> I absolutely adore her theme, though. Like the theme that they've boom, given boom, her this boom, like boom, boom. militant theme yes. of this woman who's just like I'm I this is my job I'm gonna do it and holy cow is it a great introduction to Mildred like just yes. fantastic love it yes the the tight uptight suit and the briefcase and yeah. the hair it's just, yeah. just very um, severe she looks yes. very severe yes. somebody you would not want to mess with when it comes no. to the IRS <laughs> no um, what's interesting and most People who are highly detailed fans of the Remington Steel show probably already know this, but there might be some that don't. And that is that as originally envisioned and as written in this script, Doris Roberts does not meet the criteria for the character because Mildred is edging up on 40, although she vehemently denies it, even to her mother. (laughs) Doris Roberts was too old for the part as originally written. Oh, yes. It was originally written to be... um, and I don't remember where I got this. I think I got it from one of the audio clips. Uh, she was originally written to be an attractive 35-year-old woman who would be part of a love triangle competing with Laura for Steele's <sighs> affections. I but, am so glad they did not do that. Mm, so glad for various reasons. But Yeah. But if you've got the DVDs, there's, there's a bit on there with Doris Roberts, and she's talking about her getting the part and she says that she learned about the part from somebody who had already auditioned for the role a friend of hers but this friend of hers didn't feel that she was right for the part but that doris roberts was so doris roberts asked to audition which apparently was uh, that's astounding because uh, according to her and, and a couple other things i read she didn't 
audition. If they wanted Doris Roberts or they thought they wanted Doris Roberts or Doris Roberts wanted a part, Doris Roberts got the part. <laughs> they were just given to her. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and when she, I apparently, if I remember, if I understand the story correctly, she called her agent. Her agent called the casting director for the show. The casting director went to Michael Gleason and said, Doris Robert wants the part. She wants to come in and read for it. And Michael Gleason said, no, no, she's not right for the part. And basically the casting director said, if you don't want her, you have to tell her. I'm not going <laughs> to. And so, so oh, as, man, that's good. As, Doris Rob, as Doris Roberts tells the story, Gleason uh, and company were actually down to the final five actresses being considered for the part. And he was guilted into giving her an audition. And apparently she was so dead on. Um, uh, I think Gleason said she hit every joke dead on the mark uh, that they couldn't give her, not give her the part. It, she, no. She, it was they would have had so much explaining to do if, if they didn't give her the part. So they, they obviously they rewrote the character and yeah. first of this all, is, it was the, the moving away from the idea of the love triangle was the best decision they made. Yes. 100%. After hiring Doris Roberts. Yeah. Well, I mean, but yeah, but I mean, just in general, I don't think I personally would not, that has been done to death. Before mm-hmm. and after. Mm-hmm. It's it's boring. And and yes. we'll get to that later in season five. Yes. But it's just like especially after what we established in season one, it's it would have been very frustrating to see them go that route. That being said, yes. I also love that they put Doris Roberts in the role because very rarely do we get these kinds of parts for older women. Mm-hmm. Almost all, and with the exception of as we as we both love this show, Murder She Wrote. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do we see older women in in parts where they're able to be anything other than the mom, or the grandmother, or like those character roles. This is a good part. This is a nuanced part. This is a part that has all these layers. Yeah, this isn't a character actor yeah. role. Doris exactly. Roberts is kind of a character actor. She is, but yes. This role is not a character actor role. No, this role is yeah. wonderful role. And you're right. Like I if I were a casting director and I saw Doris Roberts audition, I can't imagine saying no to that either. She's just so funny. <laughs> she's just so funny. Like she just yeah. she's perfect. Yeah. So I, and, and in a lot of ways, she's like Pierce Brosnan in that she's funny by not trying to be funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like the Leslie Nielsen effect where you go in and you say the most ridiculous things and you're sincerely earnest about it. <laughs> these you know? cans. I mean, that's Somebody what, really hates these cans. Like in the jerk. <laughs> but Sorry. Leslie Nielsen. I, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen is one of those actors who just... He he really isn't a comedian no, in, no. in most people's minds. He was a classic, you know, serious drama leading man type actor. I mean, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. And he just fell into this this shtick almost of being this totally oblivious serious guy. Yeah. Saying the most ludicrous things in the most ludicrous situations. And it was that that made it all funny. And Doris exactly. Roberts and, and Pierce Brosnan kind of have that same 
that, that same um, and they, ability. Yeah. They play off so well against each other. Perfect. Like, there's such good opportunity there for, like, chemistry and, and just that whole... And it's an interesting addition to this season that she doesn't know the secret. And whoever yes. they had put in this place wouldn't know the secret. So you've now changed the game in that Laura has no one to talk to when she's frustrated and wants to strangle him. There's nobody to complain to. And there's no Murphy on her shoulder telling her you can't trust him. He's, he's going to do X, Y, and Z, 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 Z. God, I almost did it. <laughs> it's okay. They're not going to deport me. I fixed it. Um, but you know, I can it, take that out in editing. <laughs> <laughs> you put it, if you don't, you dare put in that Z. <laughs> so yeah i i do think that this is a really good this was a really good choice we needed something different we if we had had another attractive woman because bernice was an attractive woman granted they never went the love triangle route they didn't do that thankfully uh but if yes. we had another attractive woman who was slightly older than laura but i don't know if we i don't know if that would have been the thing that the show needed I think it yeah. needed someone totally different. Yeah. Plus, uh, another thing that kind of struck me is that um, if she was going to be a 35-year-old woman, or as the script says, edging up on 40, which actually would put her like 38 or 39, 30, yeah. she would have been probably several years older than Pierce at this point, yep. which means that she would have been older than Remington Steele, which would have been probably a little bit unusual for television at that time but yeah i don't know if they could have made that work within within the series within what they had established as the series I, I they might have i mean i also have. don't know if it would have it would have felt right because and i've said this before they are supposed to be in their 20s but they don't behave mm -hmm. like they're in their 20s they have right. a maturity and that's partly the wardrobe they're given they're dressed as professionals. They're wearing professional attire all the time. Laura dresses like some of the women I remember dressing like who are in their 30s and in their 40s. And that's not an insult. It's always classy and it always looks good. But she doesn't dress like a 20-something who might be going out clubbing sort of thing. Right. And neither does he. He dresses in very well-tailored suits. And so if they had introduced this person who was supposed to be 10 years older and, and it was supposed to feel like there was a bit of an age gap, maybe she was more mature, more worldly, whatever, I don't know that that necessarily would have been apparent because they established Laura and Remington as being so mature. You can almost imagine that they're in their 30s, even though they're mm -hmm. clearly not. Right. So anyway, back to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, our... IRS lady, who we learn is Mildred Krebs, comes charging into the offices of Remington Steel, and it's filled with dozens, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe not dozens, but at least a dozen women. There's quite a few. Yeah. She walks in and heads over to Bernice's desk. That is no longer occupied by Bernice. It's occupied nope. by a bubblegum-chewing, redheaded airhead, who <laughs> really, I mean... It hurts that she they had to make her a redhead and, and be such an airhead. But anyway, yeah. she announces, I, I have a 930 with Miss Holt. Would you kindly announce me? And redhead, airhead responds, oh, she doesn't work there. That's why she's here, to find out if she works here. 
It's like, okay, I can guarantee, even if you were the only one applying for the job, you're not getting the job. <laughs> not a rocket scientist. Anyway, unamused. No, no thank you. Nope. <laughs> unamused. Not with that gum chewing habit. Oh, no, definitely not. That, that, that is so annoying. You know, what, what are you, a horse? It's so irritating. Chewing your cut? Yes. Yeah, it's, it is so irritating. So anyway, Mildred is not amused. She asks if there's somebody there who does work at the office, and the redhead points to the door and says, some fox took a look at us and barricaded himself in there. So Did she marches the over to the Huh? Some fox took a look oh, at us oh, 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 and barricaded oh. himself in there. I oh. that cannot be accidental. No, no, that and cannot I missed be it. accidental. Ooh, right over the head. Like it just <laughs> Bernice is gone, and they're mm-hmm. they're reminding us that mm-hmm. he's now the fox. Every yes. time he called her Miss Wolf, <laughs> I I personally really really loved that. I don't. I have to think it was on purpose. I have no way of knowing, but anyway, <laughs> we'll just assume it is. <laughs> anyway, Mildred marches over to the door and pounds on it, and from the inside. We can hear Steele call her out. Try to be patient, ladies. Miss Holt will be along momentarily. And <laughs> then she guy knocks is again. Terrified. <laughs> yes. She's just like, nope, nope. I'm not handling you would, it. <laughs> you would think that this would be the situation of his dreams, sitting there talking yeah, to all these he'd women. Yeah, you would think he'd be in his glory, but no, no, he's hiding. <laughs> no. Too many, too many of them. <laughs> and and he he tells her, yes, I know you have an appointment, but I can't manage in what's detained her. And she says. Oh, are you aiming to steal? And you're really the one I should be talking to. And Steele, still thinking that the woman is there to, about the secretarial position, says, you know, hiring a new secretary is Miss Holt's bailiwick. Now, if you'll just take a seat. And then <laughs> I, I like this. You don't understand. I'm Mildred Krebs. I wouldn't dispute that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> and she announces herself, you know, it's about your audit and hands him. Her card says Mildred Krebs, Field Representative, Internal Revenue Service. Um, and I'd come back to that uh, in, a, in a minute, that she's the field representative for the Internal Revenue Service. Anyway, she walks past Steele into his office, over to his desk, where she pulls out a manila folder of documents. And she talks about how she knows how the word audit strikes terror into the hearts of the, even the most fearless. But it's just routine, nothing to worry about, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> she says the IRS did an audit of the agency, which, of course, required a cross-check of the agency's return against the tax returns of everyone who works for the agency, a Laura Holt, a Murphy Michaels, a Bernice Fox. And she starts laughing and says, uh, you'll get a boot out of this, Mr. Steele. And everybody loves to give the IRS a big old horse laugh. And it is embarrassing now that they think about it, but we can't find your tax return. Okay, so she's an auditor. Okay, great. And she's going to blame the computer. What? Yeah, figures. <laughs> Mildred asks Steele for his copy of the tax return. And, of course, Steele panics. Wets himself. Pretty much wets <laughs> yeah. himself. I mean, the, like, the, uh, we talked about it all first season, the tax returns, the tax returns. It's, this it's this finally, return that Laura was supposed to be doing and didn't because yes, she went off the, to, this is it. It's coming back. The other shoe <laughs> drops now. Yeah. And so he leaves the office into the other office, which I'm not sure if, I've never been sure of the layout of the office, whether the one next to hers is, whether it's hers or Murphy's or whether it's the annex. I always get confused with it too. I feel like this should be really obvious, but yes, it is <laughs> Feels not like obvious it. to me. 
So anyway, he's in there and he calls Laura in a panic and says, it's chaos here. And she says, well, it's no bed of roses here. And yeah. <laughs> I have a room full of seething secretaries, not to mention. And she said, I can top that. I have a dead man on my living room floor. And uh, she says the papers identify the dead man as her cleaning lady's son. And, of course, Steele assures her that he'll be right there and exit through the lobby out the office without going back to say anything to Mildred. She just, he just disappears. And of course, on his way out, he does a nice bit of mimicking the redhead airhead's he, tendency to open mouth. I saw gun. that. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I had never noticed that before. And I have to wonder, do we know if that was ad-libbed? I hadn't had a chance to check the script, but it um, was very funny. <laughs> it was, I'm not, no, no, no. He was like, I also, the computers that she mentions, the 640i to the 980z to the 1020j, mm-hmm. I'm assuming those are all fake types of computers, correct? I tried looking it up, but could not find anything. Yeah, I looked them up too. I didn't find anything. The numbers don't seem familiar to me at all. Okay. <laughs> so, um, no. Also, have we ever heard of Laura having housekeeper prior to this? I don't think we have. Mm-mm. No. And there's okay. no mention in the script about him mimicking the redheaded okay. airheads gum chomping. So, so I'm going to say was that that was a bit of improvisation just, on. It was good. It was very good. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I don't know of any model of computers by those names. I mean, it could have been some really off brand of computer that the government was buying. <laughs> I mean, uh, my my guess is it was just they wanted to establish that Mildred was very tech savvy. Yes, because yes. she's rattling off all these types of computers. But it, it's also interesting to me when she gets to the "You'll have a boo out of this, Mister Steele." Everyone likes to get a big old laugh. I and I wondered what your thought is on this. I get the impression that up until he starts panicking, she genuinely just thought it was a filing error. She wasn't necessarily coming at him, thinking that there was something fishy going on. But yeah, probably. Yeah. You're probably right because most people, especially people of any kind of importance. And by, by that, I'm talking about people that, uh, that have some uh, position in a company. They're financially well off. Uh, they're the head of a company. They've got kind of some name recognition, which we know Remington Steele does at this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're they're not going to just not file their taxes. Now they may except when they don't. <laughs> yeah, they may be creative in how they file their taxes, and they may be creative in their reporting of their taxes, but they're not just going to totally ignore them. So, yeah, you're probably right. Here's another question that I have for you because this is very different than our system, and I don't know if this is just the media and how like TV portrays it, or if this is a real thing, but. Say you don't file your taxes for, I don't know, 1994. Is the IRS going to come after you that year, or could you get away with it conceivably for decades? I would say the answer is different now than it was then. Now, because of everything being so computerized and there being so many cross-checks and references in the data and what has to be reported, I'm going to say that they would probably probably catch on to it fairly quick. I mean, you might get a year or two before they come knocking on your door and say, hey, you know, uh, we don't have your tax return for this year, particularly if you f- file a tax return for the following year or something like that. But back in the 1980s, you could probably get away with it 
a bit longer because there wasn't so much stuff that was computerized and wasn't so many points of data that were cross-referenced. See, here you can pretty much go, I know people that have gone decades without filing their taxes and no one comes knocking on your door. It's just when you eventually do it, if, you know, when you file your taxes, either you owe money or they owe you money. That's how it goes, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the time, people that don't file their taxes are people who ironically use the money that, no, 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 the other way around. It's usually people who are, because it costs money to file your taxes. Unless unless you're really like good at, at number crunching and whatnot, you have to hire somebody, you have to pay the money. And a lot of people that are at the bottom of the poverty ladder, people I know who have gone forever without filing taxes it's because they just couldn't afford the 175 up front to liberty tax or h&r block or whoever they're hiring to do it so eventually when they do it they end up with a refund of like you know sometimes quite a bit of money but of course the opposite could be true too you could not file your taxes for 10 years and then when you do you owe a crap ton of cash and you have to pay it right then and there but no one ever comes after you for it. And I've always been very surprised by that because I file mine on time every single year. I never miss it. But like, yeah, so I've always found it really interesting to see these shows where the IRS is right after you. And I w- wondered if that's like true or if it was just embellished for. Well, you know. I'm not saying, I am not saying that no one in Canada pays their taxes, nor am I endorsing people not to pay their taxes, pay your taxes, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the only thing I'll I'll say about the IRS in the US is that we probably have the most heavily armed tax agencies in the world. I've seen pictures. Jeez, that's scary. Yeah, they they would put some SWAT organizations in some smaller states and some smaller countries to shame. Wow. So we'll just we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Back into the episode. At Laura's house, she is briefing Steele. She'd already told him that the dead man's papers identify him as her cleaning lady's son. His name, Hector Figueroa. He had a detailed map in Spanish to her house and a hotel key from a hotel in Acapulco. And she thought the person leaning on her doorbell was her cleaning lace, always forgetting her key. But it turned out to be this guy who had the package wrapped in a newspaper. And Steele becomes highly animated at that last bit of information. Wrapped in a newspaper? Laura, this is beginning to smack the Maltese Falcon. Our first movie reference. Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Peter Laurie, Sidney Greenstreet, Warner Brothers, 1941. Walter Houston plays a sea captain who, although riddled with bullets, manages to bring Bogart the Falcon wrapped in a newspaper. What was in the package? And, of course, he's disappointed. It's a tuna. <laughs> it's just a fish. Uh, Steele's disappointed. He says, you know, even though he worked on a tuna boat, he doubts that this guy came all this way with three bullets in him just to bring the catch of the day. <laughs> and he grabs the knife from Laura's counter and tries to cut open the fish with what must be one of the worst knives ever uh, made because worst. it snaps yeah. cleanly into right off yeah with the tip of the <laughs> tip of the blade re- remaining in the fish so yeah i mean i mean that mm, yeah really badly made knife because wouldn't it bend first you would think it must have been really really brittle anyway they put the fish in the oven to defrost it and there's a scream it's maria laura's cleaning lady and she seems almost hysterical ranting yeah and it's all in Spanish. 
Yeah. Now, according to the script, her first rant is, Mother of God, what's going on here? How am I supposed to vacuum around that? <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it all the funnier knowing oh, what she's saying. Hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's not, oh, this is oh, this is terrible. There's a dead body on the floor. It's nothing. Oh, it's, how am I supposed to vacuum around that? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of made me think of, um, for those of you who have seen Firefly, Throughout the show, they speak in Chinese, and, and they mm-hmm. don't provide translations. But I have a book that shows all the translations of everything they say. And some of them are really, really, really funny and really, like, they wouldn't have gotten past standards and practices had they had they <laughs> said it in English. So it's always, it's funnier to know what's being said when you, yeah, when you watch it again. Anyway, Laura and Steele see Maria's upset, and they try to comfort her about the death of her son. And in Spanish, Maria says, that's not Hector. I never saw this man in my life. Why would you say he's my son? He's not as handsome. Yeah, Laura's confused, of course, saying that he was carrying Hector's papers, to which Maria retorts in English, that is not Hector. I should know my own son. True. And, of course, then suddenly Steele smells something odd, and he hollers, the fish, to which Maria says, you're going to eat at a time like this? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I, I I love Remington Steele because they give even the bit actors some good lines. They yeah, really do. Yeah, they really it's good. So Laura and Steele abandon Maria. They run into the kitchen. They use a better knife than the last one to co- open the now thawed <laughs> fish and discover a cache of diamonds. I have a question. Mm-hmm. This may be something already in your notes, but how did they get the diamonds in there? And then sew them up and have, like, you would think Steele and Laura would have noticed they were stitched in or something. Because Mm -hmm. the fish would have had to be cut open in the first place to put the diamonds in. Yeah. My guess is that when they pulled it out of the oven, it still really wasn't thawed. It was still kind of frozen. And what had happened was they slit the fish open, maybe kind of gutted it. Or certainly it was to the point where you might buy it in a fish market somewhere and once having slit that open they put the diamonds in and then froze it and then when steel okay. and laura got it yeah. they started to thaw it but it didn't get a thought yeah. all the way so it was still frozen enough that the the cut the seam if we can if you want to call it that yeah was still yeah. kind of frozen shut and so but it was thought enough that they could get the knife in there and open it that's the only explanation i could come up with because you're right Fair. i thought about yeah. that too and it's like Mm, what do they do? Just like open its mouth and pour them in? Uh, <laughs> I thought that too. I'm like, no, oh, that wouldn't work. <laughs> no, it wouldn't work. Anyway, so Steele uses a pair of ice tongs to pick up one of the diamonds and he examines it and he evaluates the diamond and says it's D flawless marquee cut, approximately two carats worth, oh, about 75000 on the open market. Of course, that's How? layman's guess. Could he? There... I don't... <sighs> Is it possible to make that estimation just by looking at it? Because I I have taken jewelry into jewelry stores to have it appraised, and they have to send it out. They can't just do it on the spot with the, the naked eye. They need there are certain tools. I, I'm guessing this is just meant to show that you know he knows diamonds because he's stolen them before. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you need to examine them very very closely under magnification because. D-grade diamonds are the highest grade of colorless diamond. And as one reference 
indicates, or as it reads, it's the pinnacle of icy, colorless perfection. Yeah, you're not going to be able to see that because there's going to be small imperfections that the naked eye just can't see. Yeah. And those count. Those count. Yeah. Even though you can't see them, they still count, which is kind of, kind of, well, you know, that whole diamond market thing is just kind of, yeah. Uh, no, di- I don't, I don't own a diamond. We didn't do engagement rings, diamond rings. I don't, to me, it seems kind of silly, but other people like them. More it's power tradition. It's yeah. tradition. But anyway, back at the office, Laura and Steele are sneaking in. Yeah. All the would-be secretaries are gone. And of course, you figure that that's part of the reason why they're sneaking in. They they don't know what they're walking into. Could be a, yeah. a, a load of ladies that are unhappy because they've been standing there <laughs> and sitting there all day. But of course, Laura is a bit perplexed at his state of caution. He explains that well, a slight problem came up, but that under the circumstances, he didn't want to bother her with it. Although as soon as they Uh-oh. walk into the inner office, eh, okay. On the other hand, what good's a problem if you can't share it? <laughs> because yeah. Mildred's still yeah. there. She's still there. And we later find out that it's been four hours. So she waited four hours for him to come yep. back. Yep. Determination. Steele introduces Laura and Mildred. And Laura apologizes for missing the appointment. Very insincerely, I think. Yeah. Although she had a good excuse. But it's still, I mean, she could have been a well, little more sincere I mean, about it. I'd say dead man on the doorstep counts as a good yeah. excuse. Yeah. Exactly. That's my point. You didn't have to be so <laughs> insincere. Yeah. Happens all the uh, time. But anyway, Mildred just plows right in. She begins questioning Laura and Steele about the staff listed on the corporate returns. And we learned that Bernice ran off with a saxophone player. And Steele tries to lighten the situation with a bit of levity, suggesting that they are no doubt enjoying getting some hot licks in, in New York. <laughs> ah, yeah. And that Murphy left to open his own agency in Denver. And, of course, Steele can't resist throwing in a posthumous jag or jib. Uh, j- yeah. J- Insult. Jab. jab. He's jib jabbing jab. and jiving. Jabbing and jiving, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he says he works closely with the coroner's office. Murphy's always had the flair for the <laughs> yeah. autopsies. Well, first of all, that, that last one. Come on, Steele. Lay off. The guy's not even there. It's What's the point in giving him ba- a no. bad time if he's not there to enjoy it? But I I have an issue, especially with Bernice. Well, I also wonder what the, the draw of Denver is for Murphy. But anyway, that's a secondary issue. Bernice, Tempered Steel, Season 1, Episode 2. I'm all partied out. All I want is a slightly dull, filthy, yep. rich husband. I'm going to tell you, a saxophone player, don't fall into that category. I I suspect that she was being slightly... I don't know. Sarcastic is not the word, but I suspect she was being slightly cynical when she said that. And maybe that wasn't entirely what she wanted. Right. But she's all partied out. Uh, You know, a a saxophone player, he's probably going to be a jazz musician or a studio musician. Uh, Yeah. I can't imagine them leaving a nice, quiet, sedate life. (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, you know, it's one of those things where somebody says, you know, I'm never going to date this type of person again. I'm all done. I'm never. And then, of course, they, they date three more people just like it. Right, like it could just be well, that's true. that that whole I'm I'm done with I'm done with this type of uh, oh oh look the exact but, but they're same my type red so. flag yeah yeah but they're my type uh, my yeah. I had a different issue with this okay my my issue is that we're 15 minutes into the episode mm-hmm. and this is all we get like we get 
the indication at the beginning that Bernice is gone because they're Mm -hmm. hiring secretaries. We don't see Murphy. And I'm trying to put myself in the position of somebody back then watching this for the first time, wondering where the hell are these characters that we've known for an entire season? And then we get two one-off lines, one of them, both of them, very sort of almost at their expense. And Mm -hmm. that's it. That's all. We, We get maybe one more mention of them, I think, later on. But the, it just feels very, I don't know, like they didn't even want to be bothered with them. They didn't even want to be bothered addressing to the fans of the show where these characters had gone. It could have just been a one, like even a one-off line from Laura about how she misses them or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Or maybe she picks up the phone to call Murphy, realizes he's not there, puts it back down again. Something. But it's just a, it's a one-off line of, oh, she went here, he went here, and that's, they're gone. Well, I'm going to say that based on my recollection, if I could find that, um, (laughs) at this time in television, because again, we've talked about how the episode was basically the entire entity for TV shows back then. They weren't plotted out seasons at a time. and so. When you had the start of a season, if you're going to have major changes, that's when it's going to happen. And people, I guess, kind of got used to those sorts of things happening. And I don't recall that they were always necessarily even addressed this much. So I guess the fact that we got this much of a of a comment about their, those two characters is probably not atypical for a TV show doing this sort of thing at that time. True. I guess I don't know. I just it kind of rubbed me the wrong way that that was the 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 send off, right? That was what we yeah. got from it. And I um, and I understand that, but I think you are probably looking at it through the lens of your experience over the last twenty years with television and streaming shows, and and like I said, the shows that plan things out over an extended period of time, and so those types of things are often addressed in more detail and they're often better set up so that when they do occur, it's like, okay, we knew this was coming. The audience knew this was coming. And so it's not a surprise, but yeah, back then I don't, I don't think it was, it was just like, oh yeah, that actor's no longer with us. That character's no longer on the show. Um, Yeah. We don't need to mention it. Nobody nobody will notice. You've got shows like mash who, dealt with character characters leaving for various reasons and very much dealt with those, those leavings, right. When, when radar left or when Henry died or when mm-hmm. even Frank left, there's comments about Frank seasons later. So it just, right. I don't know. It felt like, especially without even me, it's 15 minutes in and this is the first mention we get, right? Like, I don't know. This is one of the, the kind of various little pieces of the episode that feels out of character you would think that it's not out of character for steel to make a joke at murphy's expense i'll give him that but mm-hmm. um laura doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that they're gone we don't get that until the next episode where she sort of has a crisis of oh my god i'm all alone and this is the only person that's here with me but like i don't know yeah i think you're right you're probably right that they just didn't think it was necessary to address it to the audience but i i'm thinking maybe that line could have come at least closer to the beginning somehow i don't know yeah 
Yeah, you know, and you're you're right. It was the opportunity to do something with that departure. And presumably they knew that those two characters were going away at the end of the last season. So they could have done something there to nice. lead up into yeah. it, like MASH would do uh, or some other shows would do. I'm I'm thinking it's just the attitude of the production staff was, and I, I don't mean this to be critical, it's just that their attitude was that this isn't necessary. It's not that type of a show. So it's it's not going to be a huge issue that we need to spend time with. We just do it, get it done, and carry forward. So true. No, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It would have been nice if there had been some more detail. Anyway, so back into the episode when Laura expresses confusion about what's what's the IRS looking for. Every penny's been scrupulously accounted for. Remington supplies that the computer seemed to have misplaced his return and Miss Krebs wants his copy. And of course, Laura immediately recognizes the problem. Uh, There is no copy. (laughs) And she asks Mildred if they can be excused for a moment. And Mildred suspiciously asks where they're going. (laughs) And when Laura says, well, we're just going to the next office. Mildred says, well, that's where he went four hours ago. Yeah. And of course, in the other office, Laura is trying to figure out what to do. And, Steele's obviously surprised that Laura had not planned for this contingency. And he says, you didn't file tax return for me? You didn't exist, but I exist now, so I must have existed then. Yeah. Um, this, this brought some questions to mind. First of all, when she created the agency, did she list the non-existent Mr. Steele, the then non-existent Mr. Steele, as the legal owner? It seems that she did. she would have had which, to. Yeah, which would explain why he's listed on the corporate tax returns. She would have had to list him there. And if she did list him on the corporate tax returns, why didn't she think to file a return for him individually? Would that not I mean, have everyone been... who's listed as an employee of the company has to have a corresponding tax return. I mean, I mean, and definitely anyone listed as the owner of the company would yeah. have to have a tax return. I mean, this seems, for a woman who's supposed to be as smart as she is, this is one of those... Really dumb things there, Laura. So my question then is, and and again, you know more about this than I would, but if she filed, because he later says to Mildred, I didn't take an an income. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not uncommon for somebody who owns a business to not not take an income. Um, When my parents had a restaurant, they had a small diner, they didn't take an income. But if she had filed... I don't know about the corporate side of it, but if she had filed a personal tax return for a man that doesn't exist, would that not have been like serious tax fraud? That's an interesting question, because if you file a tax return and pay taxes for a person who doesn't exist, technically, yes, it would be tax fraud, but you're not you're not using it to get money back from the government. In fact, you're going to wind up paying the government for that non-existent person because you're declaring that they had income. Um, Except he says he didn't. So, well, yeah, but as she gets into later, yeah, he got paid in kind. Yes. In what kind? (laughs) Yeah. But, um, I'm just wondering if she didn't file the return because she was afraid if, if, if this exact situation were to happen in Mm -hmm. audit, and it was found that he didn't exist, it would mean, like, jail time. Yeah. The only 
way I can think of where it might actually be viewed as actual fraud as opposed to technical fraud is if they said, well, because of this person being listed as an employee or the uh, owner of the company, you're somehow laundering money or you are claiming tax benefits on the company's behalf through this employee's supposed identity that the company's not entitled to and such as that. But, you know, the company pays taxes on every employee that they've got. Right. That's right. something that a lot of a lot of people don't understand or, or are not aware of is that they, when they get their paycheck, they see all this stuff coming up from taxes and they don't realize that the employer is also paying a corresponding amount of money right. for each one of the, or for most of those taxes as well. So, so the company's paying for the employees, uh, like their health care or their uh, unemployment insurance, and they're paying for their, uh, their worker safety insurance, things like that. So they're paying money out. They're paying money to the taxes. I, you know, I, I think it would be one of those things where it's technically fraud, but you'd have a hard time. You'd ha- have a hard time proving that it was fraud in a practical sense. So yeah, but I don't know. I wonder if that's just why she didn't do it, right? Yeah, as long as it's <laughs> technical fraud, that's all we care about. We can get a conviction. Hey, <laughs> plausible deniability. Yes. <laughs> So anyway, so they're arguing about the tax return and her failure to to file it for him. And Mildred interrupts, stating that there's a phone call for Laura. It's a Lieutenant Wilder of the Coast Guard. And as Laura takes the call, Mildred eyes steel, asking what he's doing. And he shoots <laughs> her out on out of the office on the grounds that he's checking the files and they're highly confidential. Highly Hush, confidential. Yes. Yeah. And after Mildred's been pushed out, Laura tells Steele that according to the charts filed with the Coast Guard, Hector's tuna boat was off the coast of Acapulco three days ago. The fish was wrapped in an Acapulco newspaper, three days old. The key on his body was from an Acapulco, uh, mm, <laughs> from an Alcopo, Acapulco hotel. Oh, man. You're almost Tongue saying, Oga, you're almost saying Ogopogo, which is the name of a... Um, supposed lake monster that lives in in okanagan lake in bc just point <laughs> i like Loch you, know, Ness, you, but. You, you say acapulco too many times in a row yeah. your tongue gets paralyzed yeah, or you start to sound like uh harcourt from the bank acapulco <laughs> <laughs> yeah after he's had too many wines uh, yeah. anyway the key on his body was from that acapulco hotel and so whoever the dead man was that had hector's papers he probably boarded the boat Boarded the board. (laughs) (laughs) And this is how you can tell this is not rehearsed. Yes. He probably boarded the boat in Acapulco. Acapulco! Acapulco! (laughs) When Steele Steele realizes that Laura is rummaging through her desk for her passport, he begins to panic. She says he's going to Mexico. You know, Lupe Velez, Velez, uh, I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, Maria Montez and Pedro Amanderas, which I had to look those up. And having looked those up, I have to go back to something I said in an earlier episode, specifically Vintage Steel. I made the comment about Wilson saying that sometimes he plays hooky from work. He goes to a theater right. and watches a movie and how that, yeah. among other things, was was because of Laura. And I said, you know, maybe she's a secret movie buff as well. I think this proves it, or at least supports yeah, my be. contention, because 
all three of these are lesser known in the U.S. Mexican actors. Hmm. Maria Guadalupe Villalobos uh, Velez was professionally known as Lupe Velez, a Mexican actress, singer, and dancer during the golden age of the Hollywood cinema. She began her career in Mexican vaudeville in the early 1920s, and then after moving to the U.S., made her first film appearance in a short in 1927. But by the end of the decade, she was acting in full-length silent films and had progressed to leading roles. She made the transition from silent films to talkies without any difficulty and was one of the first successful Latin American actresses in Hollywood. And during the 1930s, her explosive screen persona was exploited in a successful comedic series of films like Hot Pepper, Strictly Dynamite, Hollywood Party. And in the 1940s, her popularity peaked while appearing as Carmelita Fuentes in eight Mexican Spitfire films, which were created to capitalize on her personality. Interesting. Maria Montez was Maria Africa Garcia Vidal, is how she was born. She's professionally known as Maria Montez, was Dominican, and she gained popularity in the 1940s, starring in a series of filmed in Technicolor costume adventure films. Her screen image was that of a seductress dressed in fanciful costumes and sparkling jewels. She became so identified with these adventure epics that she became known as the Queen of Technicolor, and she appeared in over 26 films. Pedro Amanderas, Pedro Gregorio Amanderas Hastings, was a Mexican film actor who made films in Mexico and in the U.S., and with Dolores Del Rio and Maria Felix, he was one of the best-known Latin American movie stars of the 40s and the 50s. I'm sorry, a casual moviegoer wouldn't know (laughs) these names and be able to spit them out at a moment's notice. I stand vindicated. (laughs) (laughs) Or it could just be that she grew up so close to the border. She saw a lot of that stuff on TV. That's possible. I mean, we got a lot of your TV here. (laughs) A lot of your commercials too. For years, I thought that it was, it was a common thing to like call up a lawyer and sue for every little injury. And then I realized that no, we don't do that here. <laughs> but what actually another question that I have is she pulls out her passport. Did you need a passport to cross into Mexico prior to 9 11? As far as I know, yes. Um, I didn't. There might have been, <laughs> there might have been right on the edge, you know, like Tijuana yeah. towns and communities that were close enough that you didn't have to because the port of entry was on the other side of them. I know that there are some, I used to drive truck and there were some places where I would actually travel through a town before I got to the port of entry for the state. So it's entirely possible. I suppose that that was the case in Tijuana as you were talking. Yeah. Prior to nine 11 as well, we didn't need Mm -hmm. a passport to come into the U S all we had to do was show our driver's license and say where we were from. And that was a special friend. (laughs) <laughs> but after uh, it was actually it was a few years we got after 9-11 before it finally mm-hmm. became law that you had to have a passport but i we walked like i said we walked to tijuana and they were quite happy with my ontario id they just right. waved us in so i, I just thought it was interesting when she pulled out her passport because i was, was she said international travel and it is i just yeah 
unless they let me in when they should have, they were quite happy to just see I was from Ontario and, and let me let me in and back into the States. Yeah. My guess is that there were at that time, like I said, the border communities that were kind of like open for tourists. Yeah. And so you that didn't need to. There's a there's a there's a town in Washington that if I remember correctly, you don't need a passport to get to from the rest of the state of Washington, even though you have to travel through Canada to get to this town. Huh. I don't cool. remember the details. It's been a long time since I've seen this information, but yeah, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a, a little town on some like little peninsula sticking out from somewhere. It's part of the, yeah. the state of Washington, but the only way to drive to that town is to drive through Canada. <laughs> well, you're welcome to come. <laughs> anyway, Back in the episode, Steele tries to dissuade Laura from leaving the country and heading to Mexico, but she insists that she needs to... Oh, yeah. Because he's being left all alone with the IRS. <laughs> well, I think we'll find out that there's more to it than that. Well, yes, uh, but I mean, <laughs> staying behind is, is sort of a frying pan fire situation, right? Either yes. way, he's... he's... Yeah. Do you want to be shot or you want to be hung? Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, she insists that she needs to do it for Maria. Maria's worried about her son, and he could be in serious danger. And Steele argues that the danger is, yeah, okay, that's all the more reason why you can't go down there alone. And so this is when he gets into trouble because she says, well, steal away with me. Promises sun-drenched days and glamorous nights. And then he asks, could they be drenched somewhere closer to home? I like that line. Yeah. Uh, she says that line. her, she has her first inkling that there's a specific reason for his reticence. And he tries to pawn it off as just not having his passport, but she, uh, obviously she doesn't buy it saying, well, he, didn't you have five passports when we met? He had an overabundance of them. Yeah. Yes. It was, he had a good, good number of passports. Yeah. And he's got a really pathetic and transparently false excuse about trotting the straight and narrow and how it wouldn't feel mm -hmm. right to use one of those. Sure. Mm -hmm, right. So Laura calls his bluff saying, fine, stay here, deal with the IRS. I can't think of a reason for you not having to file your tax return at the moment. So you deal with it. Gives me time to think about it. I'm going to Mexico. And, of course, as she leaves, yeah. Mildred Krebs enters, and he tries to put her off, but she confronts him, asking if there's some reason why he can't produce a copy of his tax return. And he tries to play the embarrassed innocent, saying, well, he has a confession to make. He didn't file a tax return for that particular year because he didn't have any income. It's all right there in the corporate tax return. Remington Steele wasn't paid a salary. Yep. And, of course, that doesn't fly with the IRS. I mean, if you breathe, they, they consider that a benefit. And so she summarizes that the agency wrote off a car, a chauffeur, an apartment. The only valid reason not to declare those items as income would be if he devoted 100% of his time to business. And his response is basically, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, I, that's, that's the one. That's the answer. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not devoted. Well, she informs him that she'll be at his apartment at 9.30 the next morning, and if it contains one single solitary item of a personal nature, her past experience will come in handy. Six years with the fraud squad. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. Okay, now we ba get back to my earlier comment about, remember this, how she's a field investigator. Yes. If she had been with the fraud squad before, why is she now just a field representative? That, to me... Sounds like a demotion. It does. So yeah. 
what did she do to get demoted? I mean, maybe <laughs> well, this is the first we, indication that, that Mildred... I was going to um, say, she's a little too zealous about her job. And yeah, she definitely well, goes true. above and beyond where she needs to go. Uh, so she has no. Be, she has boundary issues. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> could could we also just go back like a little, uh, sure. a second to to the Laura Steele conversation? Mm-hmm. This is another moment where I'm kind of like feeling that this doesn't fully fit Laura's character. She's got the IRS literally there auditing them, mm-hmm. and she seems more preoccupied with this case that fell into her doorstep, which is admittedly also serious, but I would think she would recognize that the agency could get shut down or face severe penalties if they're caught committing tax fraud. Mm -hmm. Like this seems like she's just like, well, then I'll go to Mexico. You deal with the IRS and I'll figure out a reason later. And it it just feels very cavalier. Like steals the one playing her role. He's the one going, uh, we need to deal with this because this is the IRS. Like this is serious stuff. And she's Mm -hmm. like, steal away with me. And I'm like, uh, okay, really? This feels, I, I kind of wonder if this is her way of compartmentalizing. Like, is this an example of her wild side? And if so, does she use that wild side as a way of protecting herself when she feels overwhelmed? And it's also interesting that he doesn't attempt to con Mildred. He waits for Laura to show up to explain what happened to his tax return. He, I think he's pretty good with, with, villains and 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 hoskins types but i think bureaucracy scares the crap out of them well i mean anybody with any sense it would but (laughs) (laughs) i i think in his in this case of him dealing with mildred there may be an element of i don't know what she did so rather than say anything i'll say nothing because that way if i don't say anything and they asked me later why I didn't say anything. I can I can just kind of pass it off. But I haven't yeah. compromised the story that was given in the past. True. I haven't created a complication by going down the wrong True. wrong rabbit hole. Uh, as yeah. far as Laura compartmentalizing her attitude, no, I you know, mm, it is very irresponsible of her to yeah. just totally dismiss this whole IRS thing. I'm. I'm wondering if I'm trying to think back to season one, to any situation where she kicked the can down the road. We know Steele has done it a few times. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of any situation where she's done it, particularly when it was a major situation. I can't think of anything offhand. No, I can't so, either. So yeah, it does. This is again, as you said earlier, and now that you bring this up, this is something that does seem a bit out of character, in retrospect. Yeah, I think no so answer. Too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> D. None of the above. Sure. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> next, we see some scenic shots of Mexico, complete with a yep. hair on the camera lens in the upper right hand corner. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed that. Whoops. And it's followed by scenes of Laura arriving at the Princess Hotel. At the counter, she shows the hotel clerk a photo and tells the clerk that she's a private investigator trying to locate this guy. And she's got a story about his uncle in Los Angeles having passed away and left him a small inheritance. 
and there's no address for him. So, you know, we're just trying to find out something about him, but we think he has a connection with the hotel. He might have been a guest. And the clerk says, that's no guest. That's Pedro Campos. He's the bellman or a bellman at the hotel. But he hasn't shown up for work for several days. Sounds interesting. And yeah. so she asks about his address, and the clerk says he'll try and look it up for her. She digs around in her purse, pulls out the key that they found on the victim, and we see that it's room 2009-2009. So she asks for a room, possibly 2009 if it's available. <laughs> and the clerk is perplexed, doesn't understand yep. why she'd want that room since she's alone. Because yep. it's the honeymoon suite. <laughs> and Laura. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, another line that is kind of on the edge there. Laura laughs and she tries to cover it up by suggesting that it's no wonder her sister recommended it as the most satisfying room she'd ever been in. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good recovery. I think she did pretty good. It with is. That. <laughs> um, for some reason, this line has always reminded me back in, I don't know, it would have been like the 70s, I think it was. It was like in the early days of VCRs, there were these ads on TVs that you could buy these videos of classic TV bloopers. You know, it was kind of the, like the precursor of America's Funniest Home Videos or TV's classic bloopers and blunders and things like that. But you'd buy them and, you know, be on videotape and you'd watch them. And some of them were just silly and some of them were along this line. And... There was one, and it was on a game show. I want to say it was like Bob Barker, let's make a deal, something like that. I remember the the gal was standing on the stage, and the host of the game show was standing next to her and talking to her and interviewing her. And Oh, she's out on her honeymoon, and this is her first trip to Los Angeles. How's she enjoying it? I'm enjoying every inch of it. Oh, Ooh, okay. I mean... Uh, and we'll just leave that one there yep yep you do anyway you you go girl (laughs) (laughs) lauren the clerk last laugh about her comment about her sister and then he mentions that it wouldn't matter even if laura wasn't alone because the room's been booked solid for months and so she walks off after the clerk has assured her that he will arrange a room for her then we see a gentleman kind of as a passing shot guy named Marty Ring. He's at a table trying to check in for some sort of insurance salesman from Philadelphia event. But the check-in official can't seem to find his name. And then we have a cut to where we see another gentleman attaching a name badge to his suit. And, the and badge reads the, Marty Ring. We also have the first instance of somebody in this two-part episode ruining someone else's vacation. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, although in this case poor, it's it's a sleaze bag who's ruining. Yeah. Oh, that was a, that was the other th- other thing that that comes up that comes up yeah, later though. Yeah, yeah. yeah but okay, since you brought it up, I'll mention what is the name? What is the deal with the name Blaustein in this show? This they've got they've got three it incidences of it. Popping up. Yeah. Yeah. They it's had a it in one. Uh, to stop a steal. Now here and then later in um, steel threads. Steel threads. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I gotta think somebody on the on the set has that name. That's my guess. And they just or keep has a relative by that name, and and they managed yeah. to get the writers to include it somewhere along the line. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> but anyway, next we see Laura walking through the streets of a neighborhood described in the script as an untouristy section of town. Yeah. Street vendors are selling their wares. Kids are playing. Women are hanging the laundry. Laura approaches a woman who's cooking and trying to speak to her in some broken Spanish, explains that yeah. she's looking for, for the home of Pedro Campos and says she's a friend of Hector Figueroa and Pedro Campos's, but the woman doesn't say anything. She just kind of, after a while, turns around, walks away, and that's it. Laura turns and continues walking down the street, unaware that she's being followed by two men in a large brown car. The car pulls up to her, and the man leaning out of the passenger side window grabs her. She's dangling as the car runs down the street, and she's hanging from it, trying to escape. And eventually gets free and starts running in the opposite direction. The car backs up, begins to turn around, but stops the pursuit when they see Laura run into the man we saw earlier who followed her out of the hotel. The guy with the blue suit, guy who claims to be Marty Ring. And he makes casual conversation about her being a bit off the beaten path. And she says, well, she got separated from her group. The man introduces himself as Marty Ring, suggests that he should escort her back to the hotel asks where she's staying, and isn't it an amazing coincidence? He just happens to be staying at the same hotel. And he tells her a story about, you know, insurance convention and being given a reward as a as a reward for writing a lot of policies. And I gotta say, this is the first the first incidence of me questioning some things about this because Laura, I would think, should have already been suspicious of Marty just from one comment he said, you're a bit off the beaten track. Okay, well, if I'm a bit off the beaten so track, is, so and you're an he, insurance yeah. guy. Exactly. So yeah. are you. So what reason could a guy in a suit, supposedly in town for an insurance convention, be doing down there? I also wonder, shouldn't her Spanish be a little bit better? She lives in an area that is very close to Mexico. Presumably, this is a popular vacation destination for people that live mm-hmm. like we learn french from a very early age i took spanish in university my spanish is better than hers and i failed that class but i can ask where somebody lives donde esta la casa pedro campos like that's not hard so <laughs> i can also order a beer and like well, I don't that's know. The, I just that's feel like, the more important skill. There you go. I can ask where <laughs> someone lives and I can order, you know, yo quiero uno cerveza por favor. But I wonder why her, she has a Spanish housekeeper who mm-hmm. clearly is, English is not her first language. So shouldn't Laura's Spanish be just a little bit better than that? Like this is, and if yeah, it's it not, be. why not bring a dictionary so that she can at least rifle through? She wouldn't have had a. Google, you know, Google Translate at at hand, but she could at least rifle through the pages to ask that very simple question of where does Pedro Campos live. Yeah. Like, that just kind of struck me as a little a little strange as well. Yeah, although you know, there's a lot of people that are uh, native English speakers that don't speak English very well. Um, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, you would think. At the very least, having a Hispanic housekeeper, she would have picked up something, even if she yeah. had never been exposed to it. You know, even if she lived in a neighborhood where she didn't have any contact with on a regular basis with Hispanics and Spanish-speaking people, where she would pick it up, at least 
from the housekeeper, she would have picked up something. You would have thought. Yeah, so, you would yeah, think. You're right. But yeah, I was more suspicious about her the lack Marty of suspicion thing. of yeah. Marty. Yeah. Yeah, because he also has a very fish out of water look to him. So. Oh, absolutely. Why, absolutely. You, which obviously was intentional. He's trying to look like, you know, this doofus insurance salesman tourist. Right. But then where? why are you here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you? next we jump to the offices of Remington Steel. We see Steel. He's contemplating the diamonds that they found earlier in the fish. And the phone rings. It's long distance. It's Hector. The real Hector. Hector says yeah. he's been trying to get a hold of Laura all day and asks if someone named Pedro Campos had come to see her because he's looking for Pedro. Seal says, well, if that's the fellow with the fish, he found her, but he's dead. Yeah. This distresses Hector, and he tells Steele to tell Laura that he's sorry. It wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And when Steele tells Hector that Laura's in Acapulco looking for him, uh, oh, man, she shouldn't be down here. She finds yeah. If she finds him, they'll kill her, too. And Steele tries to find out who they are, but Hector's gone, leaving the phone, dangling in the phone booth. And then we see that brown car that had previously been following Laura parked nearby. Although I don't think anything actually comes of that at the moment. No, but not yet. Back in, but back in the offices, we see Steele in a moment of indecision. But the moment passes. He reaches into his desk, grabs a passport, thought he wasn't going to use one of those. And he picked up the phone, calls up the airlines, and books a seat on the next flight to Acapulco. The name is O'Leary, Michael O'Leary. Back in Mexico, Laura has enlisted the aid of the local police. They've been searching the home of Pedro Campos and have found a knit cap with the name H. Figueroa written inside. And Laura's concerned, and I, I would be too. I mean, yeah. Hector's not there, but there is blood on the bedding. Yep. That's not a good sign. The police officer, t- <laughs> yeah, not a good sign. The police officer tells her to leave a picture and that maybe he can find somebody who can give them some information. And in the meantime, yeah, there's nothing Laura can do. The nope. officer tells her that she should go back to her hotel and wait for his call. And as Laura leaves and is walking down the street, we see the man in the suit begin following her again. Yep. And she is again oblivious. That's twice she's been, three times actually now that she's been followed. The first time by and him from the motel. he's not exactly hard to spot. No, he's not. So he <laughs> followed her down to there. He's following her away from there. And then the car was following her. That's three yeah. times that she's been totally oblivious. And it's a bright blue suit that he's wearing. He's not oh, like. yes. You know, he's he's pretty, pretty visible. Yeah, it's, it's, he's missing the neon lights, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to say I like her shirt. I think they've got the the costuming is really well done in this episode. Mm-hmm. Her that sort of red flowy blouse is nice and casual, but it still looks nice and it's kind of like a anyway, just just random I liked her shirt. <laughs> I don't even remember what, what <laughs> Sorry, we're about she to was like, She uh, had this uh, like turquoise. Bright red uh, he when she first showed up, she had that turquoise outfit on with the yellow shorts, but now she's in that like bright red shirt. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, next we are at Steele's apartment. He comes out of the bedroom with a large suitcase and is headed toward the door. But as he opens the door, Mildred's standing <laughs> there. Uh-oh. Earlier than scheduled. Yep. 
uh, getting a jump on the day because, you know, the previous day has been such a waste, she says. Yep. <laughs> and she sees the suitcase and asks if he's going somewhere. And he quite transparently lies and says oh, yeah. something about going to Cleveland because his uncle's suddenly taken ill, you know, unexpectedly, complete shock. And I would have told you, it's, but your impending arrival, it, it slipped my mind, you know, help yourself, look around, just close the door when you leave, won't you? Ah, that's a good girl, eh? Uh, and, and that's it. That's it. Mildred's had it. She goes to the phone. She calls for backup from her supervisor. But as she's waiting for Supervisor Melish or Melish to come to the phone, she spots one of your pet peeves. <laughs> and that is a note with vital information that the hero yep. just wrote and put down and then walked off without. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently exactly. he doesn't. He didn't need to write it down in the first place, but he did anyway. And, Just so- and here's my here's the thing. Why mm-hmm. even make up the story? Either way, he's making an excuse and avoiding his responsibilities. Whether it's an uncle falling ill and I think it was Toledo, he actually said. Um, or he's going to Acapulco on a case. Mm-hmm. Either way, he's leaving and he's not sticking around for what he's supposed to be sticking around for. So why not just be honest and say... Like, they're a private investigation company. This is what they do. Yeah. Complicate, you know, there's been complications in this case. I need to go and assist Miss Holt. Have a look around. Whatever. I don't know what the what he was trying to accomplish with the, especially when he left the note. I'm not sure that the IRS would be all that impressed by any of that or care. Well, I don't think they'd be impressed with his dying uncle in Toledo either, but. No, but they're going to be less unimpressed by that than saying, "Oh, I'm leaving the country." Oh, oh yeah, you're fleeing fight. Yeah, you're, you're, okay. You know, yep. You're, you're leaving the country. <laughs> you're, you're fleeing because you're a criminal. <laughs> you know that yeah, that's that a good looks point. even. It's it's a yeah. it's a difference between looking really bad and looking extremely bad and looking criminal. Okay, <laughs> I <Yeah>. gotcha. <laughs> but yeah, uh, IRS, uh, we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> We're the government. Yeah. We don't have to care. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she receives the note. It reads, Acapulco, Flight 72, LAX, 10 a.m. So without waiting for the supervisor to come to the phone, she slams down the receiver, grabs her briefcase in her purse, and runs out of the apartment. And then we have some shots of a jet landing in Acapulco, shots of a limousine as it drives through some rather secluded streets, finally arriving yeah. at an estate, which is overlooking a bay. And a youngish man gets out, enters the house where there are several others, and one of them is an older gentleman who we soon learn is Alexander Sebastian. And is played and, by the incomparable David Warner. Okay. He, he passed away recently. So okay. I just And there's also two clients, one of whom is appraising a collection of diamonds, and another who's taking piles of cash out of a briefcase as those diamonds are being evaluated. Sebastian introduces the new arrival to the gentleman transacting the business, and we learn that his name is Paul Dominic from Chicago. Sebastian tells the clients that Dominic will ensure that their diamonds reach the United States and that they will be leaving for the States that afternoon. When one of the clients asks, how, how this, how's that going to happen? Sebastian says, it's best if you don't know any details. But he assures them that once the jewels are safe in the States, Dominic will reclaim them, and he will contact them shortly thereafter. And this seems to satisfy the clients who then leave. Didn't satisfy Dominic, though, because after they're gone, he expresses displeasure at the notion of the diamonds leaving that afternoon, saying, they're diamonds, not postcards. 
Sebastian responds that they just have to be as innocent as postcards. And then, of course, he senses there's another issue. And he asks with some annoyance, unless you've managed to create another problem. Dominic doesn't admit to creating a problem, but he whines that some broad was sniffing around the campus place. His people tried to grab her, but she got away and then came back later with a local cop. He doesn't know who she is, but until he finds out, he doesn't want to move any of the merchandise. Sebastian's response is harsh, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it seems that Sebastian gives out with something of a warning. What he says is that while Dominic may be an expert in his own particular field, and my question is, what field is that creating problems? But that he, Sebastian, is an expert in the kind of people that they're dealing with. They're frightened in the only way that the very wealthy people know how to be frightened. Their country devalues their currency, freezes their foreign assets. They panic. They scurry around looking for the surest, safest way to get their money out. One hint that their organization is in trouble and they won't be able to give away those pieces of carbon. But what seems to be hinted at underneath this is that if there continue to be foul-ups, things could turn fatally ugly for at least one of them or possibly both. And it seems that Sebastian considers Dominic an ongoing source of self-generated problems, in which case, as I said, what exactly is his area of expertise besides screwing things up, and why doesn't Sebastian replace him? All good, all very good questions. (laughs) I mean, if you got a guy that's compromising your scheme, and that's what it is, it's a scheme because it's not a legal uh, business, do you you really want him hanging around? I mean, (laughs) can't you replace him? (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. Take out an ad or something? Yeah, henchman wanted. Yes. Henchman's weekly. They put it in Kijiji. Like, I guess you couldn't put it in Kijiji, but like. (laughs) <laughs> contact um, Henchco. they sell henchmen that's a yeah. <laughs> Kim Possible reference and so also, all you Kim Possible again, fans <laughs> going back to David Warner because this actor is prolific he's been in he's a major character actor he's been in like just tons and tons and tons of movies dating back to the 60s mm-hmm. and a couple of he was in a couple of Star Trek films he was in like and he, I think he shows up one more time in Remington Steel as a different character, but he's he's the kind of person that can that can play very serious but also very threatening. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is kind of where he like he comes across as this is where they're going for Bond villain. He's supposed to be the the guy holding the cat on the lap and sort of you know <laughs> to to Mister Sebastian Alexander Sebastian. That's a very like. Uh, I don't know. There's a dangerous sounding element to it. And Mr. Dominic, same thing. So he, it's obviously, this is meant to be the bond scene where we see the villains talking to each other. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) When you talk about the, the villain with the cat, I don't (laughs) see, I I, I know it's a James Bond reference, but I see Austin Powers. You see Austin Powers. No, 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 no. (laughs) I was thinking of Dr. Evil. (laughs) No, and I can't even think of the character's name at this point. But there was a villain in Inspector Gadget. I know, I know, oh, I know, oh, I know. Oh, the claw, the claw. <laughs> okay, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's where I he go. He had the with, cat with, too. He, yes. he also had the cat. Yeah. But that's where my mind goes with these things. Is yeah. always to 
to cartoons. I don't know why. Yeah, what does that say about me? I don't know. I, I grew up on Inspector Gadget, so I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dominic says, hey, there's not a problem. He and his men will track down this broad and remove her from the picture. And, of course, Sebastian disapproves, saying that that's Dominic's problem. His answer to everything is to kill somebody. But well, he's that American. didn't help when... <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but that didn't help when he killed Compost. It just created more complications. And when Dominic yeah. says Compost took their merchandise, he stole from him. We see that Sebastian is really <laughs> smarter he of the two because he <laughs> he says Dominic should have let it go because the loss was small compared to what they're sitting on. And of course, yeah. Now Dominic has to replace Campos and. He asks, means filling out an ad in Henchco. Like it's right. just, it's time consuming. I get it. Yeah. He's a work so, smarter, not harder kind of guy, you know? Yeah. But he's sn- very snarky when he asks Dominic if he's managed to replace compost without screwing it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And Dominic Dominic's says, no. Dominic's on thin ice. <laughs> yeah. He says, no, he's, he's going to handle this one himself. And as he leaves, Sebastian's gaze follows him, but it's the... The look on his face that, to me, suggests that Sebastian might be reconsidering Dominic's future in the organization. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's not it's not a um, it's not an overacted evil evil sadistic. I'm going to get that guy. Look, it's just a cold, emotionless, flat. Yeah, and this is what I'm just David about Warner done is. Look. He's so good at this. This is what mm. he's he he does so well in these parts where he just comes across as this kind of dark character or can come across as a dark character. So yeah. Mm. Back at the motel, a porter arrives at a room, which is the honeymoon suite, although we don't know that yet for sure, to pick up luggage. The newlyweds leave the porter and he's in the room, they're leaving going down to get some lunch. After the couple's out of sight, Dominic shows up, enters the room, and closes the door behind him. He pays off the porter, who then leaves the room with Dominic left inside. Dominic runs to the bedroom, grabs a suitcase, opens it, finds a hanger with a cardboard roll, pulls out a patch, pulls out a patch, pulls out a pouch (laughs) containing diamonds, and then begins feeding the diamonds into the tube. But outside the room, down the hall, the bride realizes that she left her watch in the room. So he's going to go down to the restaurant, grab him a table for lunch, and the princess bride, let's see what I did there, returns to the room to collect. I see that. That was good. That was good. (laughs) Returns to her room to collect the watch. Dominic, still in the room, but having finished loading the jewels into the hangar and returning everything to normal, here's the door being unlocked. So he runs into the bathroom to hide. Because that's what you do. You run to the bathroom, you hide yep. in the shower. Yeah, so yeah. that's what he does. I mean, it's it's right there in the villain's code book. So yeah. the bride also comes into the bathroom because that's where she left her watch. And she picks it up. But as she's standing there, she apparently senses something is wrong because she never looks into the mirror to see what's behind her. But she turns and pulls open the shower curtain and there's Dominic. So Whoops. then we have a cut and a time jump. And we see Laura exiting the elevator, room key recovered earlier from the deceased compost in her hand. She approaches the honeymoon suite and finds the frustrated groom knocking on the door and calling out to his bride, who he presumes is still in the room. Laura makes a really awkward joke, kind of almost inappropriate about his bride having locked him out. But 
he dismisses the joke with, in fact, he really doesn't even pay attention to the joke. He's no, worried. He's he can't worried. find his wife. Yeah. They were going to go out, have a bite to eat, but she forgot her watch and came back to get it. And he's been waiting for her at the restaurant for over an hour. She never showed up. He's called the room. He's had her paged. He can't find her anywhere. Laura asks if he has a key to the room, but no, the bride has it. And bad actress Laura says, oh, with obvious fake <laughs> oh, surprise. And then <laughs> obviously fakes, you know, finding the key laying on the service cart that just happened to be sitting there. How long had that cart been sitting there? I mean, it was there when they yeah. left over an yeah. hour earlier. This hotel, is the hotel Terrible staff service. incompetent, lazy, or just clueless? I don't know. But yeah, it was there for over an hour. So Laura hands the key to the groom. He's puzzled as to why the his wife would have left the key on the cart outside the room. I mean, that's that is dumb. I mean, yeah. Here, somebody take this key, walk into our room, steal our stuff. Yeah, good plan. I also find the whole putting the diamonds into the hanger thing a little weird. Do people travel with hangers? To me, that would take up space in the suitcase and would make it more awkward to carry. But I wouldn't think so in a suitcase. Now, if you've got a suit or a a dress that really can't be folded sure, yeah, and put into a suitcase. That, you would put it in a hanger and you put it in a clothing bag. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Hangers in the suitcases. Mm, yeah. That I, struck I me as wouldn't odd. wouldn't think so. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. But uh, anyway, so they're in the room and it's obvious that there's no bride to be found, yeah. but they find the watch. And this is really concerning to the husband. And when Laura suggests that, well, you know, maybe she just got sidetracked and she's waiting for you downstairs. He insists that she would never just leave and not take her watch because it was his engagement present to her. Uh, to which I have to say, well, okay, first of all, she already did walk off and leave her watch. That's why she went back to the room in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and the Oops. second thing is, um, do I owe my wife an engagement present? Or yeah. is, has the statute of limitations run out? I mean, it's been almost 37 she, years. So I was going to say, I think if she hasn't, if she's, if she's not bugging you about it, you just let that one go. You just let that one Good. go. You know, Good. You're hopefully safe. she won't listen to this episode and uh, I, yeah. I won't <laughs> give her any ideas. <laughs> yeah, you might end up owing her an expensive watch. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway. Uh, Honey, you didn't hear that. Honey, you didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get an engagement present either, so I, maybe we need to have a, he and I might need to have a talk after this. <laughs> anyway, next we see Laura and the groom, who we learn is George Plummer. They're down in the lounge having a drink because apparently that's what you do when you've misplaced your wife. You go have right? drinks with somebody. You go have <laughs> drinks with a completely, like a total stranger who just followed you into the room. She, that's right yeah she just wandered into his room with him like this is technically yeah. a private matter and she's just kind of inserted herself um <laughs> yeah so anyway george insists that his bride peggy wouldn't have just taken off they were on their honeymoon and even though they wanted to stay at the hotel longer because they were enjoying their honeymoon okay we'll leave that one there uh they were also mm. waiting to leave eager <laughs> to return to fresno and begin their life together as mr and mrs and laura assures George, that she knows from personal experience that more often than not, what appears to be strange and contradictory has a very logical explanation. Except mm, maybe that's not true. Should. It's well, usually the say, opposite. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe she should remember that when dealing with Remington Steel, but um, yeah, fair. yeah, you're probably, 
my dogs. Oh, man. Anyway, George isn't buying any of it. He asks Laura if she has someone special, and she laughs and says, well, it's hard to say. He's special to her. She doesn't know how special she is to him. George explains that he and Peggy have been together since the 10th grade, and she's the most special person he's ever known, and she would just never, ever just get up and leave without telling him. And, of course, at that very moment, there's a page for Laura over the PA calling her to the house phone. She gets up, takes the call, only to hear herself being chastised by Steele. Really, Laura, the minute my back's turned, there you are, sharing a tequila sunrise with another man. And, of course, she realizes that he's got to be there. So she looks around and spots him. And then she... That's a cute moment when he just gives her that little wave. That's cute. Mm Mm-hmm. I like it. <laughs> yeah, she comments that she thought that the climate in Acapulco was too warm for him. And he yeah. claims that he's only fleeing from the tax collector. <laughs> and that Acapulco seemed as good a place as any to begin life as a fugitive. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think she really believes that that's the only reason that he's down there. No, not a chance. But but she doesn't, she doesn't challenge him on it at the moment. But Steele tells her that Hector is in danger and whoever's after him won't hesitate to kill again. And he starts to tell Laura that dead man's name was, and she's knows already saying, yeah, I already know it's, um, Pedro Campos. Pedro (laughs) Campos. Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry. Mind fart right there. And she says, Hey, it hasn't all been tequila sunrises. Well, during this conversation, Laura is smug because as I said, she realizes it's not really about dodging the tax man. Yeah, yeah, I'm the tax man. Anyway, <laughs> she she finally calls him on it, and she says, you could have told me all this over the phone. You didn't have to come all the way down here because you thought I was in some kind of danger. And Steele replies that he had never insulted her intelligence yeah. or her professionalism <laughs> by trying to stop her from getting killed. Getting herself killed. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and uh, let's see, what was it? Um, which episode was it? Uh, tr- uh, trying to prove that. Any woman with reasonable intelligence can oh, prove that she's yeah. as stupid as just a man. Just as stubborn as any man. I think <laughs> yeah. that was, it's in season four, and it's, I think it's the one where they're, that runner was in trouble. Yeah, because I, that's a good line. It's a good line. Yeah, and it's true. It's true. <laughs> that comes to mind when I hear this. So anyway, he swears that whatever the problems, whatever the circumstances, she can count on him to always be there to fill the void left by Murphy and Bernice's departures. Yeah. I think this is the only other mention of them. Yeah. Yeah. But immediately after that, he excuses himself and flees the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll be Uh, there for you. Bye. (laughs) I think it's interesting here, too, when she makes that comment about there wouldn't be some other reason you came down, would would there? You're right on the money in saying that she knows that he's there's something in Mexico he's trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And but at this point, I think it's interesting because she doesn't quite know how big of a risk he's taken by coming True. back to Mexico. And I think it would be very interesting if she reframed it in her head instead of like, oh, he can't be trusted because someone's always after him or he lies to me or he doesn't tell me the truth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If she reframed it as he risked getting arrested to come down and help me because he was worried about me. Mm-hmm. then yeah. it would be a very different scenario as to whether or not he's serious about her. Yeah. But of course, as you say, she doesn't really know at this point the no. significance of his situation. So, 
because he wasn't going to go. He was he was conflicted about it. He, that's why he's staring at the diamonds. But it wasn't until Hector called and said she's in danger that he was like, oh, crap. Okay, mm-hmm. I have to go. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so, and she she recognized back at the office that he was making excuses not to go, yeah. and so yeah. she should have realized that okay, there's something in Mexico. He's he he can't. He's trying to avoid. He doesn't want to have yeah. to deal with. But yeah. Uh, in this episode, Laura's not exactly on the ball. We'll leave it well, at that. and I think that that's due to, again, them trying to James Bond this episode so much that it kind of comes at the expense of their characters in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we're leading up to one. Yeah. Anyway, immediately after he departs the scene, Captain Rios is approaching and he asks Laura about Steele because obviously he recognizes him somehow. Yeah. <laughs> he's apparently not sure yet how, but he recognizes him. And Laura, of course, denies knowing him, just giving him directions to the dining room. And the good captain says that he looks disturbingly familiar. And, you know, with obvious insincerity, Laura says, well, <laughs> yeah, he has that kind of a kind face, of face, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Average. And then the conversation turns to the disappearance of the bride, Peggy Plummer. And then later we see. Laura and Captain Rios are coming away from the elevators with the groom, George. And he's, again, insisting that his bride didn't just wander off somewhere. He's known her since she was 14. She'd never be doing anything that flaky. And the trio walks past the man hiding behind a newspaper. It's Steele. And he repeatedly hisses at Laura to get her attention. (laughs) Rios and Plummer continue on while Laura stops and goes back to see what Steele's on about and asks, you know, what are you doing behind the newspaper? Well, it's obvious he's hiding. Hiding. So just yeah. how dangerous is it for you to be down here? Well, not dangerous at all, provided I can keep one step ahead of the local police, which, again, should be, as you said, a clue to it Laura that, a, okay, yeah. this is a pretty serious situation for him. It's a big deal. He's he's yeah. wanted. He's clearly a wanted man here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's not like the United States where you'll necessarily get a fair trial before you're executed. They, they'll execute oh, no. you and then yeah, try, try you first. <laughs> execute you and then try yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but then Laura updates him about the latest in the disappearance and how the honeymoon suite seems to be the focus of all events, but it's booked for months in advance. And Steele suggests that they check it out by finding out who's the next occupant. The poor Blaustein's. Oh, yes, because then we see Laura at the airport holding up a handmade sign that reads Blaustein. And Where did you know, the I, I do from? wonder, are these are these various Blausteins, are they all related somehow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder where the car came from that she's got. Did Laura get Fred to drive it to Mexico? Did they rent it? Uh, rented where, it, I'm sure. And where does she take them? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I wondered like, about that. They obviously show up later at the hotel. Yeah, she's yeah. got to drop them off somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, maybe she's got uh, uh, expense account money that she takes them out. And uh, here's some a fine dining restaurant. We'll get you set up. Have have some dinner. You've been on a plane for a long time. Yeah. Relax. Enjoy yourself. We'll take your luggage to this to the hotel. We'll get you set up, and then when it's time. We'll send the car back for you. And then she ruins some poor couple's honeymoon just to get inside yep. that hotel room. Like, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, the couple approaches saying that they're the Blausteins. And exactly what we're talking about here. They She whisks them off somewhere, telling them, laughing, 
saying that it's going to be a honeymoon they'll it's, remember for the rest of their lives. Ouch. Ouch. She's not wrong, but ouch. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it's like, um, oh, yeah, no, it's just, it's, this is not Laura. No. This kind of, yeah, it's not Laura. Anyway, back at the motel, we see Mildred Krebs. <laughs> And she is yes. still very much a woman on a mission, and she is still oh, yeah. just chugging down that hallway with yep. purpose. <laughs> and Carson, we see Steele coming down the staircase, walking into the uh, check-in desk, and he is Michael O'Leary. He had called about securing the honeymoon suite, which magically and mysteriously has become available. The desk clerk mentions that, yeah, this is kind of a surprise because the couple had, you know, they just canceled a few minutes ago, but they've had this reservation since like February. And the clerk then asks after Mr. O'Leary's wife. And just as he's explaining that, wow, she's taking care of a couple of minor inconveniences and will be along yeah. shortly, Mildred Krebs calls out, hold it right there, buster. Yep. <laughs> and of course, yep. Steele has to improvise. So he grabs her and plants a huge kiss on her lips, <laughs> all the while holding her arm behind her back. I don't know if you caught that. He's got I did, her, yeah. you know. Yeah, <laughs> it was, and it's all in an attempt yeah. to keep her from attracting undue attention, right? And right from spilling the beans. And sh she declares, "You're oh, this oh yeah yeah you're hurting me." And he and plays it up to announce that you? she loves it, <laughs> calls her a yeah. minx, and <laughs> try to control yourself <laughs> till we get, get to the, the room. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh -huh. funny sight gag. I'm gonna give them this. I'm not fan. Yes. Of, I'm not a fan of what happens after, but this is a funny sight gag, and it's done well. It's again Doris Roberts, Chef's Kiss. She's perfect. She just does such a great job. He does such a great job. This is Goofy Steel from season one. This is what Fifty we're Shades used of Steel. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear God, please no. <laughs> uh, okay, fan fiction writers, there you go. I no, gave you the title. No, no Do thank something you. With it. <laughs> And if they do, this is your fault. <laughs> I, I want to be listed as a co-writer, too. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Or story-based. Story, story <laughs> I had nothing to do with this. This is all I am. <laughs> anyway, uh, after... <laughs> <laughs> the visual is too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I gotta go. <laughs> Deep breath. Okay. After he takes her upstairs to the honeymoon suite and forces her in, an extremely irate Mildred declares that Steele has just added kidnapping and assault yeah. to a list of already penitentiary proportions. Yep. Failure to file a tax return, flight to avoid prosecution, traveling under a fraudulent passport. And, of course, all the while, Steele's trying to explain that he's on a case involving switched identities, diamonds, killers, and a tuna fish. And none of this sounds plausible at this point. Like, it just, <laughs> no. it, this this sounds insane. So Yeah, it's like, it's like you're just making it worse for yourself, buddy. Yeah, yeah. The truth is more, is stranger than fiction here. Yes. So, anyway, unimpressed. Undeterred, Mildred insists on using the phone to call her supervisor, and she contemplates having Steele arrested before they extradite him. Well, try as he might, 
Steele can't stop Mildred with reason and logic and emotional appeals, so he uses the only thing he has left. He apologizes to her, then knocks her out with a punch upside the face. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Here it is. And I don't know if this is the same for you, but for me, this is the part where it goes wildly off the rails in terms of character. Um, yeah, he wouldn't have done No. It's, and the part, worst part is this is meant to be funny. Actually, this last whole couple of minutes, the last whole couple of minutes is, is, is out of character, but. And the, yeah, it's and it's meant to be funny. Like this is the worst part. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be a, a gag, like it, cartoon-like violence. The the anvil dropping on Wiley e. Coyote's head. We're meant to laugh at this. Like oh, cartoon-like punch. She's knocked out. Womp womp. And it's this is really, really. This is violent. This is assault. This is nothing that he would ever do. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bond certainly uses not to casual, a woman. No, and and, the, and that's the thing. James Bond uses casual violence with women all the time. That's part of the legacy the of Bond. And we can't look back on those older films and criticize them from a 2023 perspective because this is a product of that time. But Remington Steele has never assaulted, like we've never seen his character assault a woman. He's always very, very protective. And, and like, this is not, this is so out of character to be just beyond unbelievable. The blood isn't real on Remington steel, but the punches are. So this is not, we don't usually see him punching many, many people at all. Anybody. Yeah. (laughs) So, and when he does, he usually hurt his hand. Yeah. He usually does this with his hand and it's meant to be, it's meant to show us that this is a sophisticated man who isn't someone who typically resorts to violence for, unless he has to. Yes. And not just the, not that it matters how old she is, but he's he's punching out an older woman, which I don't know feels even somehow it feels even, even worse. More, yeah, I yeah. don't know why that is. It, it shouldn't, but uh, yeah, I just I really really hate this scene, and I hate even more that it's played for laughs. And in the episode overall, these two episodes are very good. I I don't want it to sound like I don't like the episodes because I actually really like a lot of this. I mm-hmm. love Mildred. I love the the location. I love the sound, the score. The case is good, but this is there's just, bits. There's small bits interspersed, and this is to me the worst culprit of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, moments later, there's a knock on the door, and it's Laura, or as she announces herself, the Bride of Frankenstein, which is can a, I, another can I movie reference. On that too. Yes. Um, this is an interesting statement to make because. I used to teach this book, okay, for my grade uh-huh. 11s. And the common mistake everybody makes is assuming that Frankenstein is the name of the monster, when in fact it's the name of the monster's creator, Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein. The actual creature never gets a name. No. So when she says she's the bride of Frankenstein, we are left Man with this no metaphor name. of the creature created by someone else constantly searching for his identity. <laughs> and she's now saying she's his bride. I'm just and he has no name because the yeah. monster had no name. And he has no name. Yeah, the monster has no name. So, um, yeah, just uh, thought that was an interesting film to use. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> but it's a backhanded movie reference. Yeah. And um, for those who are interested, it's Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, Universal, 1935. Movie. Has nothing to do with the book. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, you want a good film adaptation that actually attempts to follow the book? Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with Kenneth Branagh and Helena Bonham Carter. 
Just saying. <laughs> okay. Laura is amorous. Steele yeah. is distraught. Oh, yeah. When he says he's going crazy waiting for her and that there's something in the bedroom that demands her immediate attention, she <laughs> leaps into his arms saying, Home, James. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yep. um, and starts kissing his neck. <laughs> while Steele indicates that normally he would agree with her, he doesn't think this is the time. Nope. But when they get into the room, Laura sees Mildred stretched out on the bed, unconscious, and Laura's beside herself. Steele's explanation is that Mildred thinks he's a tax evader. And also, um, by the way, the whole hotel staff, yeah, they think she's my wife. <laughs> this this is the beginning of the first in a long string of times when Mildred gets in the way of the two of them uh, mm-hmm. getting lucky. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. And Laura's not too happy about it right now at, uh, no. at any rate. And, of course, now the problem is what to do with her. Their solution? Tie her up and gag her with strips of cloth torn from the bed sheets. Yeah, they're gonna have to pay, the, pay for those sheets. And and here again, in order to commit to the gag of him punching Mildred out, we have to assume that it would be in character for Laura not to ask how she ended up unconscious. Mm-hmm. Because what would he have said? Well, I hit her. Yeah. <laughs> and then Laura would say, "What? Oh, okay." It. <laughs> so she just sort of, oh yeah, she's unconscious on the bed. This is totally normal. This happens all the time. Let's tie her up. Like. <laughs> Uh. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) after securing Mildred in the room and then securing the room from casual intruders, they split up with the intention of meeting downstairs. Laura leaves by the normal means out the front door of the room while Steele climbs out of the balcony to the room below. This is interesting because she's the one that's not supposed to be in that room. He's the one that's booked the room. So theoretically, she should be the one going over the balcony. He can leave through the front door. Because otherwise, yeah. it looks real weird if the yeah. woman who checked in to try yeah. to get into the honeymoon suite checked into somewhere else and it is now seen coming out of the door of the man who's married to the older lady who you know apparently loves it when he gets rough. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, he's trying to remain incognito and out yeah. of the eye of yeah. Captain Rios, <laughs> yeah. which he's definitely going to do by climbing down the outside of the building. Right? <laughs> That's not suspicious at all. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So anyway, he drops down into the room below them. There's an older couple in the room playing cards. Steele yeah. pretends to inspect the glass in the door and declares it filthy. Promises filthy. to send someone up to address it immediately. And then leaves as the woman announces, Jan. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this bit... I wish I could remember. It reminds me of a, a very similar scene from a movie. I think it was a British comedy, but I can't think of what it was. But it's, it's very reminiscent of something that I've seen somewhere else, and I wish I could remember. It's probably like a carry-on film. They have like a series of, of films called the carry It was a franchise, carry-on, up the Kyber, carry-on, whatever. And, and uh, this would have been a gag I could see. I don't, I, I've seen a few of them. With my husband, yeah, he's a fan, so I could, yeah. I, I, I can't say for sure, but I would guess. And I'm, I, I it seems to me that it, it was a British film, and I'm going to say that this is a very British bit. So I don't think yeah. I've seen it too often in American films. So you know, maybe that's another nod to the James Bond thing. But anyway, yeah. Uh, later, we see Laura and Steele meet in the outdoor lounge, and Laura informs Steele that Captain Rios may have found Hector. The police arrested someone answering his description, but he had no papers and he refuses to give his name. 
and he mooned a group of nuns in the town square. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> that's what they said. <laughs> yeah. It almost feels like a that's what she said joke for the clergy, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Steele suggests that Laura go talk to the mooner while he hangs about the hotel looking for any suspicious characters. And as she leaves, Steele notices Marty Ring start to follow Laura. So naturally, yep. Steele follows Marty Ring. Yep. As Laura walks through the hotel lobby and out onto the street, we see our new honeymoon couple, the Blausteins, finally arrive at the check-in desk. Poor Blaustein. Insisting that they did not cancel their reservations <laughs> for the honeymoon suite. Oh, the, the, Steele and Holt are leaving a path of de, a, a slew of destruction everywhere they go in this episode. They're just... They're just... Oh. Mm. <laughs> anyway, Marty calls out to Laura and then... Outside of the lobby, graciously opens the door of a taxi for her. And then as that one leaves, he waves the next cab forward and climbs in, gets in the cab and takes off. And Steele does exactly the same thing and yeah. gets in and asks the driver if the words follow the, that car have yeah. any significance to him. And the cabbie grins and says, hey, man, we get the Starskin hutch down here. Steele's <laughs> <laughs> out. That's a good one. I like that line. (laughs) At the jail, Laura meets with Hector, whom Captain Rios says they are calling the The man man with with no no shame. shame. (laughs) Laura asks Hector if he really did moon a group of nuns, and he he says, hey, I figured the safest place for me right now is in jail, and I needed to get the police's attention fast, so, you know, (laughs) that's just what you do. That's a smart, smart way to handle it, yeah. He apologizes for getting Laura caught up into the situation, and then we get the rest of the scam kind of filled in. Pedro would hide the stuff inside some tourist luggage. The tourist would then take it across the border, ignorant of the fact that they're doing that. Someone would yeah. do a fast break in on the other side and get the stuff back. But Pedro paid Hector $1,000 to borrow his papers. And since Pedro had never been to the U.S., didn't speak any English, and Hector's mother had always said that Laura was a nice person who was always willing to help somebody in trouble, Hector had also drawn in a map to Laura's house and told Pedro, hey, if you need any help, go find Laura. But after Pedro left, two guys came to his place, found Hector there, physically demanded that he tell them what the deal was with the papers. And once he escaped from them, he ran. Laura wants to get Hector out of jail, but he says, no, I'm staying here. I wouldn't even make it to the airport. You know, I did kill me first. And Laura doesn't know why. He says, because they think I, I know who Pedro was working for. And, of course, Pedro didn't tell Hector because that part of the story, he figured if Hector didn't know, it, it would be better off for him. But I find this whole thing a bit confusing because I think he means that he knows who Pedro was working for and the guys that are chasing him want to permanently make sure that he doesn't reveal it. Except yeah. that if that was the case, why didn't they kill him when they had him and after he gave him the story on the papers? Alternatively... Yeah. Another version would be that someone else is after him for the identity of the people Pedro was working for, but they don't know it. And presumably the men who worked Hector over, but they, they worked for Dominic and they had knocked. Yeah. Who do the guys work yeah. for? Is it for Dominic? And, and they're chasing him because Dominic doesn't want Hector to say anything. But again, like I said, they would have would have killed him on the spot, which leaves somebody else trying to find out who it's. Yeah, 
I mean, <sighs> yeah, it is a little confusing. And I, I wasn't, I think it's supposed to be one of those things we hand wave because they need, for plot purposes, they need Hector to be afraid Some of his guys. life. And yeah, yeah, he's just sort of there to show us how serious things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, during the exchange, Pepe's, which is a disco, is mentioned as yep. the place where Pepe would pick up or where Pedro, <laughs> where Pedro would pick up the merchandise. Pedro picked a pack of pickled pep. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So, so they have a lead, but Laura warns Hector that if the lead at Pepe's doesn't lead them anywhere, he's going straight to Mama. And his comment is just as it's long as not it's in not a box. box. Yeah. Well, sh- as she's leaving the prison, she's grabbed by someone and she responds <laughs> as if she's going to defend herself, which smart move, but then she yep. realizes it's steel. And he gives her an uh 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 to deter her from her normal, exasperated and incredulous yeah. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? sort of response. Yeah. And he lightly kisses her on one cheek and then the other while warning her, casual, nonchalant, old friends who happen to bump into each other. But she does give a get a bit of a jibe in by saying, Aren't you a little yeah. uncomfortable being so close to your natural <laughs> habitat? I love that line. I that's a that's a great Laura Holt line. Speaking of mm-hmm. moments where they are in character, that yeah, is a, a perfect, perfect Laura Holt line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just a little bit snarky. Yep. Anyway, Steele points out that Marty Ring is following her, and Laura doesn't quite believe it. She says, ah, he's an insurance salesman. And Steele suggests, well. Let's test that theory. Yeah. He says, let's see if he's interested in old Spanish architecture or something a bit younger and more American. They walk through the town. Marty's trailing behind them. And after a while, they come upon the entrance to the bull ring in town. Yep. And Marty's still following. But taking advantage of the high walls surrounding the ring, they duck inside. They're running through the pens and the chutes. And they temporarily lose Marty. Although during their maneuvers, they do nearly run into a pen that is occupied. Yeah. And they get lucky. The The bulls at the moment don't seem to be all that interested in them, and they just kind of ignore them and steal and lure back out. During all this, Marty is also wandering around inside, but he finds himself eventually in the center of the ring, the business center of the ring. And yeah. once there, he begins looking around for any signs of Remington and Laura, maybe they're up in stands. Who knows? But then he hears a noise from the gate behind him. It prompts him to reach into a jacket, pull out a gun. And after moments of silence, there's another sound. It's a bull running out of the chute and into the ring. Well, Marty runs toward the gate to get to the safe place, but he's met by Laura, who's not only guarding the gate to prevent his departure, but also knocks the gun out of his hand with a long pole. She is, they are trying to kill this man. Like, this is another part where I'm just like, um, I get that Mm. he was, I get that he was following you, but you have now put him in a situation where this, he could die. And he even points it out to her at the end of the conversation. He says, you know, attempted murder to the list of things that you might be guilty of. Like, this is very un un them as well it's not Mm -hmm. out of character for them to confront somebody who's following them but usually they don't make sure that he's about to be gored by a bull yeah and i'll also also point out that from what i know of bullfighting and it's not a lot he's steel is right when he says later that the red thing is a myth they're not enraged by red but Mm -hmm. usually what happens is they they 
do something to the bull before putting it in the chute to make it mad. And then it's the sudden movements and, and whatnot, the taunting, et cetera. Like it's, it's actually quite brutal on the bulls and that's why it's been outlawed in, outlawed yeah. in so many places. Um, so they probably didn't, the bulls probably weren't that interested because they're, it's their off time and nobody's there mm-hmm. kind of hitting them or prodding them or poking them. But yeah, yeah. And so in that case, he would be in less danger than he might otherwise be. Yeah, I mean, but it's still a bull, and it's still a bull that's yeah. just trying to gore people. So, oh yeah, it it this just seems like one of those moments where I'm like, okay, Laura, you know that he could die. It's a little here, over right? the top, yeah. Like, it's yeah. I get, I get. If they knocked the gun out of his hand and then opened the gate quickly to let him out, that would to me would be. But then I wonder if he just wandered in there. They obviously shut the gate, but did they let the bull out, or did the bull come out on its own? My impression was that they somehow managed to get the bull out. In which case, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit over the top. <laughs> but uh, anyway, after she knocks the gun out of his hand and she makes a few sarcastic comments, Marty tries to get away by going down into the chute where the bull presumably came out. But Steele is there confronting yeah. him. and. When it appears that Marty might try to run to the other side of the rink, Steele says, hey, don't dash about. And this is where he he mentions that it's a myth about bulls being enraged by red, but that they don't react too well to sudden movements. And, of course, after considering his current predicament, Marty holds up his hands in the surrender gesture and then pulls out an ID wallet and tosses it to Laura. And the ID is for Jack Merkel, Inspector, U.S. Customs, which raises a question in my mind, but mm-hmm. we'll circle back to it later when we find out more about Jack Merkel. So stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> anyway, Marty Merkel says that Laura is a suspect in the theft of $250 million worth of diamonds lifted from three European banks. And Steele sarcastically mentions that he seems to have missed that in the press. Very in the back pages. Very in the no back doubt. pages. Yeah. Marty Merkel says that it was kept quiet because of the possibility of that many diamonds being dumped on the open market gave everyone cause for concern. Now, as I was writing my notes for this, that line struck me in a way it hadn't before. Who was concerned? Presumably the people who buy and sell diamonds, you know, yeah. the diamond market, the diamond industry. They would be concerned about how a single large dump of diamonds legal status and legitimacy notwithstanding, uh, how all those being dumped into the market would affect the prices. But that's strictly a diamond industry concern, not a yeah, customs a- concern. Customs does work with industries to combat counterfeiting of products, you know, and they would presumably be willing to work with the diamond industry to prevent the importation of stolen diamonds, but their concern and motivation is supposed to be law enforcement not yeah. specifically to protect the economic well-being of a particular industry. So I I had to wonder why would Marty Merkel share that as the concern because what would it matter if his job is simply just to prevent the illegal importation of the diamonds? Well, and interestingly enough it's the same it's the same reason that Sebastian gives to Dominic when he says that this mm-hmm. this is making a lot of people very nervous. So, yeah, yeah, but as a customs agent, the effects of the importation of that many diamonds on the price of diamonds in the market, irrelevant. 
Yeah. So why even yeah. bring it up? No, I agree. That's it's uh, weird. And would he even necessarily have known that detail? I don't. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. And, and Marty Merkel has and, issues. Steele's answer was interesting. His sarcastic, you know, this must have been. I must have missed this in a paper. It's buried in the back pages, mm-hmm. no doubt. Is interesting here because, given his former profession, he would have noticed something like this in the news. Yeah. This would be something he'd keep an eye out for. So. I like that sort of, that again, feels very in character for him. But not only that, you would have thought that because of his contacts, I mean, he still has contacts in that world. Yeah, and so you'd exactly. think that because of his contacts, he would have heard something through them about it. But no. Yeah. Anyway, Marty Merkel says that now the diamonds are starting to show up in the States. And since he thinks the guy who bled to death all over Laura's rug brought in a shipment, she must be involved. She must be the contact. And then he demands yeah. that she explains herself. And, of course, Laura ignores the demand and says to Remington, this is some sort of inver- interrogation, isn't it? He's asking more yeah. questions than we are. Yeah. Well, Marty Merkel takes the hint. He says that they found the Siemens papers on the guy in the name of one Hector Figueroa, but the prints don't match. Then, having been the good cop momentarily, he goes back to trying to be a modified version of the bad cop warning him that they need to get smart, implying that if they tell him what he wants to know, he can make the suspicions of their involvement in the theft go away. Then he insists on knowing where to find the real Hector Figueroa. At this point, Laura seems to have gotten some of her spidey sense back because it's obvious that up to this point, she hasn't been paying attention to what's been going on. Or, I don't know, maybe it's just that she's really annoyed by Marty Merkel at this point, but she doesn't give up Hector. Marty Merkel no. insists that, hey, there's nothing sinister in the request. We just want to ask him some simple questions like, how come your papers wound up on a dead man? And then, of course, the implied threats return. He casually says that, at a minimum, they're looking at withholding evidence, maybe smuggling. And, of course, they could be looking at being accessories to a murder. You know, just... Give him some information. No threats, but, you know, it would be a Which shame. Which is true. If he gets gored to death by a bull. Yeah. Kind of well, true. But, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's it's not the, the words that are the threat. It's the implication yeah. and the tone. But, anyway, Laura. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. Laura picks up the gun, sarcastically tells Marty Merkel, it's always nice dealing with the government. And, yeah. of course, that's never true. But. No. Then she throws the gun and the ID wallet into the bull ring, and without thinking, Marty Merkel rushes over to pick him up, having forgotten that his bigger problem was the bull and yep. the fact that he's trapped in the ring with him. And as the bull begins to make aggressive moves toward him, Marty Merkel pleads with Remington and Laura to get him out. Laura hops the fence, begins drawing the bull's attention from Marty Merkel toward herself, giving him a chance to get out. But now she's in a situation. So yeah. Steele pulls off his jacket, rushes into the ring to distract the bull toward himself, giving Laura a chance to get out. He waves his jacket as a muleta, drawing the bull's attention away from his body and towards the jacket, giving him the opportunity to escape the ring. So finally, with everyone safe, Laura and Remington start to leave, but Marty Merkel warns them, think about his proposition slash threats. And then he tells them, if you want to find me, just look over your shoulder. Yep. Once they're out of his earshot, Remington chastises Laura for being uncooperative with the inspector. And she says uh, she's not going to give up Hector until he is in the States, which um, I Makes think is sense. a smart move. Yeah. yeah. 
But commenting that Marty Merkel will take kindly to that, Steele points out that they now have something in common. They're yeah. both on the lamb, her from the customs, him from the IRS, and she reminds him also from the police. Yep. And Remington quips with some sarcasm, sun-drenched days and glamorous nights, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and then we jump back to the hotel. So they are back in the hotel room. And Laura is untying poor Mildred. She's trying oh, to explain Mildred. the case to Mildred, obviously in the hopes of getting Mildred on side. And then she proceeds to gaslight Mildred, speaking of the, oh. the term gaslighting, by telling her that she was a little bit overzealous and transcended well, her authority. But before that, she, she starts out with the most condescending. And oh, if yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. And if you were the... Honest, Mildred. May I call you Mildred? Yeah. I mean, does anybody really, why does anybody even try that? Nobody buys it. No, Everybody knows what it you're doesn't. doing. It's so, it's so like trickly, Obvious. sweet, insincere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then as you say, she gaslights her. Yeah. And I gotta <laughs> say that this is kind of out of character for Laura. I mean, it, in what she, way? I mean, she is very good at being condescending. No, I Steel is the one who's smarmy, but she's really good at condescension. Just uh, yeah, but just sort of uh, you'd think she and I get that Steel has backed her into a corner here and she doesn't really have any choice but to go along with it, but well, right. She I don't know, she's usually a little bit more empathetic and this just comes across as well this is really your fault that <laughs> you ended up punched knocked out and tied up to a bed i mean really if you think about it this is this is all you you know so well it, she may <laughs> in all fairness she may not know about the punch at this point but well this is my question because this was actually one of my questions where's the bruise she's, un- she's unconscious the woman's unconscious how does she think she got that way <laughs> well i mean he could have slipped her a mickey but i, I guess you know, the yeah. fact that the fact that he hit her and she's he hit her hard enough that she's unconscious. Yeah, I would have thought that there would be a bruise by this point. But you'd think maybe not. there'd be I, some I'm not sort a doctor. of mark. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but yeah, but yeah. She then she tells Mildred she's going to remove the gag, and in the spirit of cooperation and friendship, Steele is less than enthused when mm-hmm. she does this. Mildred complains her tongue fell asleep, which I think that's a really nice touch because you don't normally see when they gag somebody on TV. You don't normally see any effect of that, and it would it would put your tongue to sleep. You, okay, that was <laughs> that was a question I had. Would 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 that? It, my question was: Is it actually possible for somebody's tongue to fall asleep? I think I know I, that when you <laughs> I know that when you go to the dentist and they shoot you full of Novocaine, yeah, and your whole mouth is talking like yeah, <laughs> it, you know, your your tongue is kind of numb. But yeah, uh, is that the same thing? I I, I mean probably I'm assuming it could go numb. I mean anyone wants to correct us, please email us. But I'm gonna guess that it's possible, especially if she's been laying there this whole time with her okay. with the gag in her mouth, right? Right. Uh, All right. So yeah, she continues to pile on the flattery, telling her that she's impressed with the investigative talent it took to track down Mr. <laughs> Steele. I mean, this is she literally found a note in his apartment with the with the flight information so this was not mm-hmm. genius work right <laughs> this was not hard for well true but she didn't have the hotel information That's i true. don't think 
No, it didn't say anything about the hotel. Yeah. But I got to wonder, did he know where she was staying? I guess he must have. But yeah, anyway, so (laughs) she then also says that Mildred would be a good fit in the agency. (laughs) And that, and then points out that until their tax situation is cleared up, Sorry, Mildred points up, out that until this tax situation has been cleared up, that could be construed as bribery. <laughs> so Never we're crossed adding, my mind. Yeah. Wouldn't have you on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, which is, you know, we're adding to the crimes that they've committed oh, sure. here. <laughs> I mean, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Yeah. I mean, better to ask forgiveness and permission, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, then Mildred demands to call her supervisor. Laura says absolutely and that they trust her. Steele is really skeptical, but Laura points out that they can't keep her bound and gag the whole trip. His response, why not? I find it reassuring. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Laura recaps what they know and points out where uh, Pedro picked up the diamonds at a disco called Pepe's, which is apparently... Uh, an old haunt of, of Laura's. She she knows it well. Yeah, yeah, but as they're coming out, before they start into that, I love Steele's line, you left your trowel in the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's really, I mean, he, he can see it, right? This is really her, yeah, piling yeah. it on. Uh, he tells her, this is funny, I like this bit. He says that with crimes of this magnitude, there's usually a finder's fee of 10%. And 10% of $250 million is, and Laura finishes by saying $25 million, and then he looks like a kid who just discovered Christmas and says, yeah. do you realize that we could be given $25 million for being honest? And she's re- she, that really astounds you, doesn't it? She, you, she's quite amused by this. You can tell she's yeah. very amused. Well, and I have written down here, is he finally, finally having an epiphany here, finally realizing that he can do basically everything he did before as a con man, and all that can be used to make a living within the law with much fewer risks than those inherent to operating outside the law. I don't know if he's having an epiphany. I think this is just amusing to him because Okay. Yeah, like I don't I don't think I, he's already kind of on the straight and narrow, but I think this is just one moment where he's like, "Holy crap. He's got a lot of a, curves." I can get a lot of well, that's true. His his straight and narrow has some wiggle room. I'm just saying that he he uh there's a there's a there's a t-shirt. His straight and narrow has some wiggle room. But yeah, yeah. He, I think he's just really really tickled pink by the fact that if they do the right thing, he could be filthy stinking rich in the process. Yeah, so really. I I mean, hey, I think everybody would would enjoy that particular perk. <laughs> yeah. So. I I I wouldn't turn it down. No, me either. He replies that it heartens him. And then Mildred opens the door, comes out looking devastated. And she says that her superior told her that if she's not in the office in an hour, she's going on suspension. So that means that they've <laughs> literally cost this poor woman her job, uh, more more than likely. So that's they've they've ruined a honeymoon. In all fairness, she did kind of have a she, have a part in that. <laughs> that's true. I'm just saying, like they've also ruined a couple's honeymoon. They've they they're they're doing quite the you know they're having quite the hurricane time in Laura. Yeah. <laughs> so we we switch scenes here and they're in a restaurant and I got a comment before we go any further I want to comment on on the wardrobe for for both halves of these episodes because again I got to think that this was partly the let's go James Bond to the hilt motif because if you'll notice for throughout both halves of the episode Steele wears almost nothing but white and black 
And he's primarily dressed in white most of the time. And here he's wearing a white tux. Laura, she kind of had a little bit of color when she arrived in Mexico with the the blue shirt and the yellow shorts. And she had that red shirt. But then she kind of goes off into the the monochromatic black and white as well. And I just think it's interesting that this was a very specific style choice because they don't, Steele doesn't normally wear white suits. Mm-mm. But, you know, if he's going to end up being James Bond, you better yeah. let him wear all the tuxes he can yeah. right now because afterwards <laughs> yeah, he's true. not allowed to. Yeah, he can't wear them anywhere else. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And I think that pertains, I haven't, obviously I haven't read the contract. I don't don't know all the details, but I'm thinking that pertains to basically any place in public, yeah. not just in a film. No, because anywhere he, I mean, he could be filmed, he could be anywhere they could catch you know, paparazzi yeah. catch a picture of him and then he's in trouble, right? So, yeah, he couldn't yep. for the the five, four films? Four. Four films four. that he was Bond. Sorry, I was counting in my head. Yeah, he couldn't wear a tux outside of the Bond films. Yeah. And they were almost always white. The tuxes were were usually white. So this is kind of, you know, this. I think this wardrobe choice sort of furthers the, the James Bond audition, I guess you want to call it. So, yeah, yeah he's waiting for the for Laura in a white tux. She joins him and, you know, he tells her she looks beautiful. She sits down, notices the tequila sunrise and thinks that Steele bought it. But it was actually Merkle who's sitting by the bar making good on his promise to watch them. Uh, She asks where Mildred is, to which Steele replies that he sent her into town to buy some clothes. Um, With the agency's money, I assume. With the agency's money. But, I mean, Laura comments on his generosity and he says it's the least he could do as the poor woman only bought a satchel full of tax returns. Also, he punched her in the face. So I think (laughs) that, you know, probably... (laughs) The tax returns is probably the the more significant thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, in order not to get uh, charged with assault, he's probably doing the best he can to keep her happy. <laughs> you know, yeah. so she then turns serious, and this is an interesting uh, moment that she decides to ma- bring this up, basically, because she she says they're getting down to the wire on this thing, and she's nervous, and he thinks it's because of Markle, and she says, you know, it has nothing to do with him, and then he finally astutely says, "Afraid I'll run on, out on you to save my own neck, eh?" And she confirms the fear by saying it happened in the lobby when you saw Captain Rios. And he thinks it's, mm-hmm. he gets defensive, right? He says, do you think I'll really leave you in the lurch or are you just curious part of my mysterious past? And this is where she kind of lets loose on him. And she says that, you know, you want to take a more active role in the agency, but you ran away the moment you saw Captain Rios in the lobby. And she wonders how many places they can't go because some other Captain Rios might be looking for him. Right. And yeah, you know, and, and the thing is he, he, he gets upset and defensive, like you said. Yeah. But excuse me. He just did exactly what he said he wasn't going to do. And in fact, he even said that before he did it a, a little bit earlier. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of my question was that, do you think it's fair for her to be critical of something from his past in, in you know, well, whatever yeah. his past? I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, look at what happened just earlier in the episode. He just bailed yeah. on her and she had to run interference. I mean, she's potentially in trouble True. by giving him a chance to get away. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. Oh, no, no, that's, no, that, that, that no, that, comes that's up. coming up. That's coming that's up. That's coming up. Okay. <laughs> All right. But yeah, I mean, okay. But 
he still he right. he did in the lobby duck away under the newspaper mm-hmm. because he he didn't want to be seen. So it's fair because her point is absolutely correct. How many other yeah. places can we not go and do cases because? And I, I think this is an interesting fear because it's different than her normal fear, which is that she's going to get in too deep emotionally. Now she's scared. It, it was one thing before because she was afraid he wasn't going to come in. And she had Murphy and Bernice to do all these things. I mean, theoretically, if Murphy and Bernice were still around, Ber- Murphy would be the one in Mexico with her. Right, if, if Steele didn't want to come, she would have him to come with her and, and she'd be able to do all these things. And she wouldn't worry about what Steele's past might bring up. Right. But this is the first right. time that she's basically, she doesn't have them. She only has him to lean on and she's never really been sure of his desire to stick around. It only occurs to her now that there's nobody to fix things if they break. And I think that that's a really interesting point where she kind of goes wait a minute what if what if we end up somewhere else that's international and there's another captain rios or someone's trying to settle an old score or yeah and i think this is one of the times that he's shown real most of the time he's in season one he's kind of taken it in stride that she wants to know more about his past etc but i think this is the first time he's shown real anger and irritation that his own past that he's cultivated cultivated might be working against him yeah which is Kind of neat. <laughs> it's a bit of a different, like they're they're doing something. To, it's season two, right? We're mm-hmm. in season yeah. two and they're kind of yeah. like, okay, well, we can't keep rehashing the same old points. We need to bring up something new. And, and I think that this fear almost deepens for her because she sees, uh-oh, now I she's really seeing the, the byproduct of his past front and center. Yeah. And the safety net's gone now, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then he seems to realize that she has a point. So he says, do you want to know what happened in Mexico City? Right. And then he tells us about a score called the Martin. This is a great bit. (laughs) This is a, this is fantastic. This bit, like the whole, the whole thing is just, it's hilarious. Yeah. And the, the, so I have a little bit, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on the song. Um, because okay. Which one? Ride of the Valkyries or Guantanamera? <laughs> Guantanamera. <laughs> um, because it's it's got a really interesting kind of. I, I, I just know, love that punchline though. After the third band comes over and they ask him, and you know if he has a favorite song, and he says, "Yes, Ride of the Valkyries," and they say, "Sure," and it go right back into Guantanamera. <laughs> yeah, it's the only one they know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, but, yes. Highly trained musicians. Yeah, he's trying to tell the story of what happened in Mexico City. And every time he does, he's interrupted by people that Mm -hmm. want to sing and they want to. So he starts to say there was five pieces set with emeralds, rubies, sapphires, originally given given as a tribute to one of the Borgias in the 15th century. Somewhere along the way, it got broken up. And as he's telling the story, the first trio uh, you know, comes over and asks if they have a song request. He's irritated, says he can't think of anything. The singer says he'll just play one of their one of their choosing, and he launches into Guantanamera. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up this song because when I was in Cuba in 1993, um, so for this is one of those things. Cuba is a very big tourist destination, or has been a pretty big tourist destination in Canada uh, for years and years and years. And we went. Mm-hmm. I went in '93. And it was the year that the storm of the century happened. So I ended up right smack dab in the middle of a hurricane, which was a whole other story. But um, when I was there, 
this song was everywhere. You could not avoid it. It was everywhere. And so I, I found it really interesting that they're playing in Mexico. So I looked up the the origins of it. Do you know like do you know where this song comes from? No. Okay. So this will be a fun I did a deep dive here. So I copy and pasted what I found on the internet. So this is okay. not my words. But uh, it was originally written in 1929 as a patriotic song about Cuba. So that kind of fits why I heard it everywhere when I was in Cuba because... Okay, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it's interesting that they're playing it in Mexico. So, yeah, and it's basically a protest song. And uh, the tune has evolved throughout the years. It's been used in struggles for peace and justice across Latin America and the U.S. It's been recorded by a remarkably long and diverse list of artists, including Joan Baez, the, Fu- the Fugees, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Julio Iglesias, Pete Seeger, etc. You can find recordings of it in Spanish, Italian, French, Welsh, English, and Dutch. And apparently one artist named Roland Alfonso even recorded a ska version. So that would be interesting. Um, but it's essentially, uh, originally the lyrics had a romantic spin about a love affair gone awry. It was a story of a woman who gets fed up and leaves her man after being mistreated, possibly in the form of an infidelity. But those lyrics quickly fell by the wayside as the song evolved to one about national pride. So it be- basically became um, a Cuban, like patriotic Cuban protest song. And yeah, so the, so it's kind of interesting because it's in America, it's been used during anti-war demonstrations, union strikes, marches for an overhaul of the U.S. immigration system and civil rights for immigrants. In more recent demonstrations, it was sung at Wall Street and around the country where folks are commenting on the balance of wealth. So it's, it's very kind of funny that they're sitting there awkwardly listening to this song that is technically a, a protest song, a political protest song. Which I, I know I've know heard it. recordings of it before, but you yeah. know, it was always just, I'm trying to think of even who it was that I would have heard it recorded by, but it was just, you know, it was a song on an album. Was, yeah. You know, like something like Herb Alpert or who knows. Yeah. You don't really think <laughs> about it. Right. But, uh, no, I just, so anyway, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're sitting there awkwardly listening to the song until still gets fed up and, and tips them, pays them to go away. Resumes his story, saying that apart, these gems were worth a great deal, but together they were priceless. Over the years, a Belgium collector managed to acquire four of them. The fifth was discovered in Mexico City. And of course, after he says this, yet another trio comes up, offers to play his favorite song. He says, I don't have a favorite song. So they go back into this one. Uh, He grabs some money, hands it to them to get them to go away. And Laura points out that they're coming over because he's such a good tipper. (laughs) So he... uh, yeah, he asks where he was, and Laura reminds him Mexico City. She's amused at this point. She's having a great time. He continues, says that a price was agreed upon, but before they could change hands, they were stolen by a very wealthy and powerful businessman. And then, of course, another trio comes up and sure. asks if there's something. This is the part you mentioned. <laughs> He's like, yes, ride of the Valkyries. The man says, of course. And immediately they start playing the same song. So this is, I like this bit. He's irritated at, and he's irritated and you can see Laura is highly amused. She bursts out laughing and Steele does, or Brosnan actually does a really good, he's really good with this moment where he's trying to be angry. You can see it on Mm -hmm. his face. And then he just dissolves into laughter as well. And in the midst of that laughter, he admits that he stole the bloody thing back. So she's satisfied Mm -hmm. with this response the two get up to leave. 
And as they get to the door, Mildred comes in wearing a new dress. Her hair is done up. She looks like a new woman. This is not the button-down, you know, stern kind of Mildred Krebs. That they, she's, she's dancing around. She asks mm-hmm. if she passes inspection. They tell her she looks wonderful. She says, when do we eat? And they slip out of the door. But she doesn't seem too upset by it because she's too busy dancing to the music. Dancing. She's, she's yeah. enjoying Guantanamo. <laughs> which is good. Someone's there to listen, you know? <laughs> yeah. So That's cute. I like that bit. And so they, uh, <laughs> there's a scene change. Here's my question. Why are they're in the honeymoon suite? Are they not? Mm-hmm. So why are they in their burglary crime clothes? Didn't they basically like, isn't steel supposed to be in there? They stole someone's honeymoon. They're he, he's yeah. booked in there with Mildred. Yeah, that always confused me, too, because he's looking through luggage, which I presume is the luggage from George. It's George's luggage, yeah. Yeah, uh, with the missing wife. So, I don't know, maybe... Why is his luggage still there? Yeah. (laughs) The thing thing really confused me, yes. Because he... he kissed Mildred. She's his wife, right? <laughs> supposed mm-hmm. to, yeah. That's supposed to be his room. And, and they look like they've broken in. They're in their crime clothes. They're doing crime, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then they have Mildred outside keeping watch. So, yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of questions about this. Yeah. But, it just, uh, it doesn't make, it do- doesn't make sense within the context of what we've been presented because. No. They're supposedly in their own room. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, anyway, he shows Laura, who deduces that Peggy must have walked in on whoever was hiding them. So he shows her where the, the diamonds are. He puts them back, stating that whoever took them might come back to reclaim them. Looks serious as he sets the luggage down and says, can I ask you a question? She turns around, assuming it's about the theft. And she says, no, I don't think what you did was illegal. And he interrupts her by asking, how long do I have to keep proving myself? Is this a fair question? Has he earned the right to ask it or have his actions in the past season still left that up for debate? Well, yes and no. I I mean, he has stuck around. He has proved that he has an interest in sticking around. But, I mean, he still hasn't totally proven I, I mean look at what happened earlier when yeah. he was in the lobby captain rios came in and he he had to hide and kind of slip out the back it, it's there's still that possibility simply because of his past coming back to haunt him which is brought for yeah brought out even more in this episode than it oh, had been sure. in the past in the past yeah. it was it was well you might just take off because you're bored you're tired of me you find a score or whatever now it's it's you might bail on me because someone's chasing you somebody's chasing you yeah Yeah. so i mean it's a fair question he 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 has a point that she should be giving him more credit than she is maybe at this point but i mean it's it's only fair that she still has doubts and i i kind of wonder if it's fair for him to ask for a timeline because it's not like it's not like something like this is okay. You you do this for another year. Like he, it's almost like he's asking how long does he have to stay on probation? 
And, you know, like, <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you meet somebody <laughs> and then uh, two weeks later is the first date. And then yeah. three months later is, you know, this. And then, you, yeah, you schedule out your whole relationship. No, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's it. It doesn't really fit. <laughs> so. But he is I, I think you're right that he hasn't really earned the right to demand that his past be a non-issue. Yeah. It's still there. But he also does he does bring up the point that she's apparently not considering, not wanting to admit whatever, uh, when he says, you think it's any different for me? I mean, I've never spent this much time in yeah. one place in my entire life, and it's not only because I enjoy playing detective. I mean, sometimes I look at myself and I say, what happened to you, old sport? I mean, <laughs> you've become positively domesticated. And so yeah. he's got a point there that Laura knows about his past, knows that he hasn't or knows something about his past, knows that he hasn't necessarily stayed in one place for a long time. Daniel even made reference to that. And, of course, this is, the first, I think, the first time he's used the words domesticated, which is interesting, but I, I'm, I think it's significant. I'm not sure mm. to, what, to what extent it's significant, because is he meaning domesticated as in, he's willing to stick around longer or domesticated as in he's willing to change his lifestyle. I'm not sure if he's reached that second one yet, but I think he's in the process of it. And I think that this is, this is, I think the first time he's admitted out loud to her that she makes him vulnerable because in the past, he hasn't really done that. He, not he to says her. A, no, he says a few things. He says, before he gets to that part, he says, what does it matter what I was? We've been together for what could be considered a season. Doesn't that mean anything to you? And I personally, I think this is kind of clever the way they work in that this is a new season. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We've been together for a season. <laughs> Wink. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and then she brushes that off with her seasons come and go. And when they're over, you can barely remember them. But then he also adds, he says, this is when he jumps up and like grabs her and kisses her. Uh, damn it, I care for you. Which, again, I don't know if he's really said it in that way. He's told her he's attracted to her and stuff, but he mm -hmm. hasn't really. And then he goes, launches into the bit where he talks about being, having not spent so much time in one place, how he's paused. And it's not because I enjoy playing detective. That's, I think, an important statement that he makes. Because he's admitting that it's not for the the fame and the renown and the whatever else he gets for being the infamous Remington Steele, he's sticking around for a different reason. Yeah. So, and it's, I guess the word domesticated that he used there also indicates maybe that he's not just sticking around for the challenge of getting her into bed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it indicates settling down in a way. Yeah. And he's, I, you're right. I don't think he's quite at the, the place where he's, I'm going to settle down. We'll get married. We'll have 2.4 children. But he's acknowledging that he doesn't feel that wanderlust that he would normally be feeling around this, this point in a situation. He's, he's happy where he is, um, but she's still not there. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So I think, and it's funny because she says, that's not what I mean. I'm terrified of losing myself, of getting swallowed up by you until there's no me anymore. Yeah. And th this exchange is, is kind of interesting because he says, 
you're the one that jumped into my yep. arms. Home, James, she said, pointing to the bedroom. And her comment, I rehearsed that all the way up in the <laughs> all elevator. All the way up on the elevator. <laughs> I uh, told myself I wasn't going to be afraid anymore. And you know, that's, that's, that would be like that would be like me trying to convince myself to go jump out of an airplane skydiving. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to no. do it. Uh-uh. Yeah. No. She's not at that point. If you're having to convince yourself that you want to do something, rehearsing it, telling yourself, you're not, you don't want to do that thing. No. That's not no. where you're at. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then, of course, she drags her mother into it. Yeah. Which, but it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. Because we usually associate her fears with her father, but she's really afraid of becoming her mother. It was, I mean, she's yeah. been left before. Wilson left. But mm-hmm. Wilson didn't swallow her up until there was no her anymore. So right. she got through But that. it's inter- it's interesting, though, also her description here of Abigail, because we really didn't see this aspect of Abigail when we saw her in the two episodes that she was in. So it's interesting that... Well, I think we sort of did. I mean, well... But not not the 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 no joy, no sorrow, no nothing, not even oh, anger. No, we didn't see that. No. And if this is what Laura is using as her defense, excuse, whatever, for why she's feeling the way she is, it's like okay, Laura, but that was in the past. Look at your mother now. Okay, she's not. Uh, granted, she had the, the one issue with the the, the doctor who wanted clothes. to. Yeah, <laughs> but overall, she's she has recovered from that. I mean, she may not be the greatest person in the world. Obviously, she's yeah. still got some other issues. But yeah, she's trying to run her daughter's life. But she has recovered from that. She isn't the person that has no joy, no sorrow, no nothing, not even anger. So if that's Laura's example, then she's missing the the rest of the example that you can come back from that. Yeah. She's missing, she's missing the end of the story, I guess. Yeah. And I've got here right after that part. I think Laura could use some professional psychological counseling. Yeah. I mean, her, her mother, father's relationship, Wilson, she has some serious trust issues, uh, fear issues, anger issues, all centered around, relationships with men because of what's happened to her in her past, either herself and Wilson, her mother and her father. But instead of recognizing that it's not every man who is guilty of hurting her, it was specific individuals. I mean, it's like she's holding court on every man she gets involved with and declares them guilty until they prove themselves innocent, which is exactly what Steele is saying here. And of course, that means they will never be judged innocent because, I mean, it's almost impossible to prove the negative. It's almost impossible to prove somebody innocent, you know, particularly when Judge Laura sees guilt in everything they say and do. And everything which could prove their innocence is instead twisted in Laura's mind to further prove their guilt. Yeah, they've both got some. This is one of those things where they both got some serious work that they need to do because Steele especially in this episode seems particularly aggrieved that she's not just getting over or that she has issues with some of the stuff in his past. And it's, those are fair. Those, those issues are fair. Mm -hmm. Those questions are fair. But at the same time, she's 
You're right. It's hard to, because if, if she's saying, okay, well, you're on trial or you're on probation, he's going to be on probation forever because she's always going to be thinking, oh, when is it going to, when is he going to screw up? When is he going to fail? When is he going to hurt me? Um, yeah. She wants a guarantee, but even if he gave her a guarantee outright, he said right now, yeah. well, in I'll fact, never he did leave you. just a few minutes ago, I'll never leave you. She's not going to believe it because in her mind, well, how can I believe you? You're a con man. You've lied to me before. Yeah. So I can't believe you when you say something else because how do I know it's not a lie? Well, interestingly, he's never promised he won't he won't leave her. He's never said that. In fact, anytime she's asked him for a guarantee, he's he said, I can't do it. I can't give you a guarantee. Right. Not I don't think he's saying that because he he might leave her. I think he's saying that because he doesn't want to promise something absolute like that when he knows those absolutes are what she's afraid of. Yeah. Her father. You can't win for losing. No. And the thing is like her father, particularly like a parent is supposed to be that mainstay. Your parents are supposed to be constant, unwavering, unconditional. And the, the non-human to superhuman. Well, yeah. I just mean, that's kind of what a child grows up. Mm-hmm. believing yeah. in their world that their parents are always going to be there. They're the ones that are never going to let them down. And her father bailed in probably one of the, her more vulnerable parts of her adolescence. So to her, like, I mean, I hate to boil it down to daddy issues, but it, in a way that, that it's unconditional love that she should have had, it she didn't, right? So if that if that guarantee is not guaranteed, then any other guarantee is going to fall short. Always. Yeah. Like I said, she's always looking for somebody that she's getting into a relationship to prove themselves innocent because she's yeah. already judged them guilty. So I don't it's think... It's not going to happen. And when then he says you want guarantees and she says, and you can't give them. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't argue with that because yeah. I think he recognizes that he, even if he promised, I'll never leave you, I'll be with you forever, we'll die holding hands and be buried in the same plot or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if she'd believe it. No, she wouldn't. I mean, (laughs) let's, (laughs) let's look at her history. Let's look at her behavior. No, she would not believe it. And it would be insincere (laughs) because you can't promise. I mean, you, you can do the best you can. I mean, when you get married, you promise to love that person in sickness and health till death you part, but people get divorced. Stuff happens. Uh So I think he also recognizes that if he makes a promise like that and they don't end up together forever, that's only going to hurt her even more because it'll, it'll just prove what she believes all all along that men can't be trusted. Yeah. They make promises and they break them. So there's, but she does, he, he, he says, it seems that we have an awful long way to go. And she senses that they've reached an understanding at least and says, it would be nice if we could get there together, which I think is a a nice little compromise in that moment, right? They kiss. And then of course the bond theme starts again (laughs) and uh, you know, that they hear something that startles them apart. They hide and they watch as a hotel employee comes in and grabs George's suitcase. They -hmm. confront him and he bolts making it to the elevator just in time. Steele suggests calling Mildred to try to look at his transportation. And then we have a 
Scene change. They're walking on the beach the next day. Laura points out that Mildred is not half bad as an investigator, that she not only got the license plate, but she found out the car was rented to a Paul Dominic from Chicago. How? How did she find that out? Well, it probably maybe used her IRS <laughs> credentials. Go- I don't know. <laughs> did she Google it? She's, they've got no internet. <laughs> she, they don't have access to the, the company computer, even if it could find that information. And they're on vacation. How did she find out that information? She can't run a license plate. <laughs> no, she, but you know she does have those IRS credentials and some contacts still at the IRS. So yeah, but she's and, on suspension, and they know everything. Well, they're not going to help her. Her out. boss knows that she's on suspension, okay, but not yeah, everybody maybe. else is going to know that. You know, so she can That's still true. take advantage. What in in financial terms that they would call the float, the time between something happening and the time it actually happens, or the time you start something, like write a check, and the time it comes all the way back into your bank. She's yeah, probably got true. that going in her favor right now because certain people know she's been suspended, but not everybody does. So she can just make phone calls. I, Mother Crabs, IRS badge <laughs> number, whatever. I need this information. Could the IRS run a license plate, though? Oh, the IRS can do anything. I mean, what wh- what are you going to do if you tell them, well, I can't do that? We're going to audit you. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I can do that for you then. <laughs> I don't think anybody here in Canada fears Canada revenue the way Americans seem to fear the IRS. <laughs> well, like I said before, we've got the, the world's best armed IRS agents you know, in yeah, the world. Yeah, that's terrible. It's really scary. Yeah, yeah they, they've, got more, they've got more weapons and ammunition than some, some small military countries, you know. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. Okay, well, can you imagine Mildred with one of those? AK forty sevens. So they reach Pepe. She's probably a better shot than they are. She could probably find the agency bullets, <laughs> and she probably would yeah. know where the ammo is. <laughs> yeah, she. <laughs> there we go. That's wouldn't what keep it. For. Wouldn't keep it in a box on the top shelf in, in tissue paper. <laughs> no, she she knows what she knows how to use it. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, they reach, they're outside Pepe's. They're each Pepe's. They go around the back since there's a guard at the front. Laura jumps to look over the wall and sees that it's closed. She's genuinely upset and tells Steele that you'd never know it, but at one point it was the most popular spot in Acapulco. He's surprised by this, and she continues saying people came from all over the world to spend the night at Pepe's. Every and night he starts New- connecting the dots. Yeah, <laughs> every night was New Year's <laughs> Eve, and at, at midnight the ceiling would open, balloons would come down. And then, of course, as you said, that's where he connects the dots. Is that where you trip the light? Fantastic. She immediately mm-hmm. becomes a bit more guarded and says, never mind. And guarded? He, yeah. How about flat-out defensive? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just drop the subject. All right. It was a long time ago. Another which era, is, another person. <laughs> another her, which is funny because yeah. he already knows that side of her. So, And here's actually, I wanted to point this out, too, because we've talked about how this show and all shows, most shows like it were episodic. They weren't serialized. Mm -hmm. Right. And the one few episodes that they linked back to something said in another episode was vintage steel. When they introduced Wilson after still having seen, and now we've got a further link, right? This is connecting back to vintage, which connects back to it, it. It's becoming a little bit more, not serial serialized, but there's more elements of it that are connected that we that they're yeah. expecting the audience to remember, I guess. So 
Yeah, but my question is here, why does she once again seem embarrassed about what happened? I mean, because... Back at Vintage Steel, she didn't seem to be yeah. all that embarrassed. No, she, she was I mean, proud she was, of it. She obviously was slightly embarrassed, but it was more of a, a bashful embarrassed. Yeah. You know, like uh, a- it was. Oh, yeah. Well, he found out. Okay. <laughs> Silly me. And now it's like, mm, sorry, close the door, you know, chopping block, guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's strange that she seems kind of this bashful about it. it almost feels a bit like a character reset like they're trying to remind us who these people are in some ways in case in case you missed season one here's here are some of the bullet points which i guess also fits with them having the same argument of can i trust you haven't i proven myself that's it feels a bit of a rehash and if you think about it they do this in every season premiere not to spoiler alert <laughs> spoilers spoilers season three premiere same thing happens she's ready to take the next step something happens season four premiere he disappears she's got to go find him See, it, it it kind of sam and diane right it's it very much it's almost like they're trying to remind the audience that these are the problems that they have and these are the arguments that they keep having and and we're going to tease you a little bit more about it they're they're not together quite yet so yeah just kind of it's interesting. Yeah. And I've never been a big fan of that. Put them together, break them apart. No. Th- that Cheers did for so long. And just, you know, it was just so insulting to the audience because. Well, and it's, it's not realistic. Fun. It's not yes, realistic it's, in it's, the slightest. No. And that's, it's a manipulation. It's manipulating yeah. the audience. So, yeah, that's. And we're seeing a lot, it's not as bad here, but yeah. No, same, I mean, one of the thing. things the show had going for it at the beginning was the fact that they were not shy about admitting that they were attracted to each other. It wasn't mm-hmm. a castle or Lucifer situation where they're working together, but they're constantly yeah. saying, oh, we're just friends. We're not into each other. Bones, where it takes, what, 12 seasons? You know, it's like season seven before anything happens. Like it, they, They're freely admitting that there's something there. It's just the writers are constantly finding Breaking ways to keep them not together. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I blame yeah. the writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then he says, unlike you, I don't care what you did in your past before grabbing her and kissing her. And she asks if the kiss is a way of proving it. And it's obvious that she's enjoying herself, but unfortunately he had a different purpose in mind. He asks the color of the car that accosted her. She's distracted by him, you know, kissing her. And she says, Maroon Chevy, I think. And he says, perhaps they changed cars. The one that's been following us is gray. This is the second time he's noticed that she's being followed and she hasn't. Mm -hmm. And I got to think, this is probably, we've talked about how Stephanie herself has publicly come out and said that they eventually started to sort of gives steel more competence at the detriment to Laura. And this I'm guessing is maybe one of the episodes where she might've had issue with that. I can't say for sure as I'm not inside her head, but it feels like they are toning down Laura's skills in order to heighten his. And, and previously in our discussion of this episode, I had commented back. I think it was when, uh, she was out walking on the street and the car was following her just before they grabbed her and yeah. snatched her and was carrying yeah. her about how 
they've got her being totally oblivious to what's going on because this is like the third time she's been followed in this episode yeah. and not noticed. So yeah, I mean, we've already, already noticed that already. And yeah, it's just, it's just getting worse. And it, it's kind of frustrating because they don't have to make her look incompetent no, in order don't. to make him look like he's learned something. He's been around for a bit. He's picked up on things. They've, we've seen them work as a team. Mm-hmm. In the past. And she never had this issue with Murphy. They they never had to dumb her down when no, working with no. Murphy and making, you know, and and trying to show him as a competent investigator. So why would they need to do that now? It's yeah, not a zero-sum game. It's not like where if you give somebody credit for being a good investigator over here, you got to take it away from somebody over here. No, they can both be good investigators. The, the trick is to write them in such a way that they have different skills that they're yeah. strong in that either work together or occasionally cause friction. I guess if this is a James Bond movie though, Bond is good at everything and the women are decorations. So I'm not saying that that's what Laura is, but if they're using this as sort of a mm-hmm. Bond audition I, I understand of sorts, your logic. Yeah. They're 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 going for the full full the full Bond, Bond feel. Right? They're going yeah. full Bond here. So <laughs> No, I understand um, your logic. Yes. Yeah, and then he says he suddenly has an uncontrollable urge to take a walk on the beach. She's, you smooth talker, you. <laughs> and uh, so they're on the beach. Steele points out that Pepe's would be a good place to keep the diamonds. And Laura adds, or an American honeymooner. And Steele points out that if that's the case, doing anything precipitous might prove fatal. Mm-hmm. And Laura then adds, unless they've already disposed of her. Which, E. He says, Laura, please don't entertain that thought. She suggests finding out who owns the place now and seeing if they can figure out a way in. And of course, that's when he mentions Notorious and she doesn't get the reference. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> um, before he gives us Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, RKO 1946, describing how Ingrid Bergman's character infiltrates a group of Nazis to discover what they're up to. And the scene sort of trails off with him describing the plot. They get back to the hotel. Laura mentions that he what still po- hasn't told her. What part of What's this that? don't what part of this don't they understand is a bad idea? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, she says, You still haven't told me what happens once Claude Rains discovers she's a government agent. He hesitates. Laura reminds him that if she's going to be playing the Bergman part, she deserves to know, and he reluctantly tells her that she gets poisoned by cyanide in the soup. So, you know. <laughs> don't worry. Carrie Grant rescues her at the end. <laughs> bad idea. I mean, there should be red flags, fireworks. Horns oh, blurring at this place. point. They're it's, falling yes. like confetti. <laughs> yes. This is Such not a, a good idea. plan. <laughs> no. Especially given Laura's inability to work undercover. And, and we've talked about it before, and I, I and I stand by my earlier statements that when it's impromptu, she's fine. She's she's actually pretty good when it's impromptu. But when it's planned out, when she's having to follow a plot, oh, she's horrible. Well, to be fair, I'm going to I'm going to give some credit here because she was doomed before she started. We know that we find out oh, yeah. later that Merkel is the one who's behind everything. So he would have Marty Merkel. He yeah, Marty Merkel, whatever his name is, he would have given her up to Dominic before she even had a chance to pretend to be into him. That 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 whole scenario was doomed from the get-go. Yeah. So before but, we get too far into it, but <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, they didn't know that. No, so they didn't. Even not knowing that, though, I mean, 
even if Dominic and those guys didn't know what was going on, didn't know that Laura was a private investigator, it's still a bad idea. <laughs> I will get there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as they get to the hotel, a speaker per voice or whatever over the loudspeaker is calling for Richard Blaine. <laughs> I hope somebody e. else is a Bogart fan. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> Laura recognizes, oh, wait a minute, this is one of your aliases. And he tries to get away, but he's stopped by Captain Rios. And it's, it's, I like this, this conversation at the, at the beginning of this interaction because they exchange pleasantries almost as if they're old friends. You know, he asks her why he's in Acapulco, congratulates him on the promotion. Laura interjects and says that she knows that he's wanted in connection to an incident and that she, he, she is certain he can explain everything to Captain Rio's satisfaction. Don't think so. Um, but they are right in the middle of a case. And if they don't act now, a young woman could lose her life. Does not work. Captain Rio nope. says his hands are tied. Senor Blaine must return to Mexico City. He's about to go with them when Laura throws herself against Captain Rios and Steele makes a break for it. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't she get arrested for this? Mm-hmm. I, would I would think, think so. that this is a like, would think crime, so. yeah. aiding and abetting like a, a wanted criminal, right? So, Yeah, um, and, you know, I, I'm hesitant to just make uh, general comments about law enforcement in Mexico, but from the things I have heard, they're not exactly the most forgiving. Yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, I've <laughs> heard those same things. Like, I don't think this would go well for her. No. Uh, but it doesn't, I mean, he just says he's disappointed in her. And nothing yeah. else happens, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so we get this chase scene, Steel running away with the sound of, again, this title Bond theme in the background. <laughs> yeah. He ev- I felt a little misplaced, this theme in this moment, because the scene is sort of comical. And it, it doesn't really feel comical. It feels more that the, the score, I mean, doesn't feel comical, right? Usually yeah, there's the, the scenario, the situation, the whole... Is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and especially because he evades them by jumping in the pool, swimming up to the the bar, and ordering a pina colada. <laughs> yeah, which he's in, what? His, in his, his clothes. Is soaked. Yeah, <laughs> and presumably uh, still wearing his shoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then we get a scene change. Mildred enters uh, Pepe's. Well, actually, not Pepe's. A disco of some sort. Then goes to the men's room with a paper bag. <laughs> she calls his name. His head pops up over the stall. She gives him the clothes. Uh, he calls her an angel of mercy. Asks her if Captain Rios questioned her. And she says relentlessly, now I know what it feels like to be on the other end of an audit. Which <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> a good line. But comes around um, and goes around. Yeah. She goes on to tell him that this has been the most exciting time of her life. <laughs> Steele seems kind of surprised. But she goes on to talk about how it's been... You know how exciting it's been, oblivious to the fact that he's changing in front of her until he takes off his pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to which Mildred well, gets well, all embarrassed. Not even, not even, not even when he took off his pants. It's when she was saying it, talking about yeah, it, that it suddenly naked. clicked. Oh it's like, gosh. who would have thought that I, just a few days ago I would have been in Acapulco watching a man undress, oh. <laughs> undress, take off his pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, in the disco, Mr. Dominic has apparently found time between his kidnapping, murdering, and diamond theft for a night out. 
Uh, he's dancing badly with a blonde woman. And to some very walks out. bad music. It's terrible music. Okay, so I'm it's... glad that we're on board here because... <laughs> Can I read my comment? <laughs> please, please do. It's like something out of a futuristic dance club scene from Buck Rogers or Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> the original. The original Galactica. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Right there. Right there. Yep. It's just... It's painful. Like, I don't think anybody could dance well to this music. I'm going to go out there and say it because I don't think a dance club would play that music. No, and I thought maybe for me it was one of those. Okay, maybe I'm wrong because I was no. I wasn't a young person in the 1980s. I was an infant. So what do I know? But <laughs> yeah. No, it's bad. <laughs> this feels like the music, like anytime you get a sitcom or any other type of show where they don't want to pay rights for something, so they just play this like ridiculous beat that they're apparently people are supposed to be dancing to. But the problem is that this scene needs the music to work for it to function. Yeah. It it really does because it's like, when hey, Laura, we got a guy in the back. He's got one of those little electronic Casio keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> Can he record something for us? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's just yeah. Yeah. So Steele sits down opposite Laura, who has Merkel with her. He asks what he's doing here, and Laura tells him that she called him to help locate Mister Dominic. She says he's a high line fence from Chicago, and Mildred comments how she loves this technical talk. <laughs> I do want to, you know, Mar Marty Merkel talks about how he talked to organized crime boys and gives them this information. I've got a question about that that I will bring up later because okay. at the moment, the question doesn't make any sense for somebody who hasn't watched the episode. So gotcha. it will later. Yeah. So. Remind okay. me, we'll come so, back to that. Yeah, okay. He believes that he's the contact from the States and he's involved in organized crime. Laura believes that if, if they can get to him, they can find the diamonds and find Peggy. He says if they can nail Dominic, we'll forget about Hector's involvement. And Steele says, no offense, but don't you think that this Dominic character is a little out of your league? I can handle myself. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Why is he getting cold feet now? He was the one that suggested the plan. This information isn't uh, new. Yeah. They already know that he's involved in, in in very high stakes diamond theft and somebody's already been killed. So it's not like this is them realizing that they're suddenly involved in this thing where there's danger. They she's been attacked already. Mm -hmm. Um somebody's definitely they know there's diamonds involved. Twenty five million dollar finder's fee is nothing to sneeze at. So none of this should be something that he's surprised about. Well, the only explanation I can come up with, and, and this just occurred to me as you as you asked that question, because I'll have to admit that question did not occur to me prior to this. Sorry. I'm just that good. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. No ego. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just that he threw out the idea of the movie off the top of his head, didn't expect her to take it seriously, or maybe even expected her to shoot it down as just another yeah. one of your harebrained movie references. And then when she actually seemed to get on board with it and think that, hey, this is a plan, then he's, he starts getting cold feet because he understands the danger of it, particularly in light of the fact that she can't act. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't really require that much acting to seduce it to seduce somebody, to be fair. But the seduction itself is... I'm not sure if I should be offended at that or not. 
I mean, I'm just saying, like, if she, I mean, I'm talking from the perspective, Laura is a young, attractive woman, right? She's to to just get a dude on board with that is not going to be hard for somebody who looks like her. Um, yeah. Okay. They put a whole they put a whole spin into it, but <laughs> yeah, you know, the other thing is though that Steele says, no offense, but don't you think this character's a little out of your league? And she says, I can handle myself. Why is she so insistent on being insulted when somebody's trying to give her some counsel? I mean, she could have said, we don't have any other choice or we don't have a better plan or something, but it's, it's like her ego won't let her acknowledge that there might be a situation that she can't handle or that is beyond her, you know, and ever forbid that it's that comment comes from somebody who isn't a real detective. (laughs) I think in this case, he was being a bit condescending, or at least it came off that way. Just the words he used. Don't you think he's a little bit out of your league? That implies that she's small time and he's a pro. That she, it just it, He could have said it in a way that was a little bit, don't you think this is a bit dangerous? Don't you okay. think that right. we could get hurt? Instead, it's your league. So that kind of personalizes it, which I, I think is why she gets defensive. You're the girl yeah. next door and he doesn't go for that kind Exactly. Yeah. And so (laughs) she says she can handle her part. And while he's guarding Pepe's, Merkel will be guarding her. So (laughs) she asked Mildred if she's clear on her part. She says she can handle herself, echoing Laura. And so Laura says, showtime, and gets up. Steele grabs Merkel, tells him he'd better stay close as he doesn't want anything unforeseen to happen to Miss Holt, which obviously doesn't trust Merkel. Michael mm-hmm. tells him just do his little dance and he will take care of security. Yeah, he's 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 not a nice man. <laughs> no, he really isn't. He's yeah. Laura goes out onto the dance floor and <laughs> I mean yeah, over the top. Over the no, top. I'm gonna blame part of this on the music. There is no okay. way to do this well with that music. It just isn't possible. Like <laughs> it's just <laughs> But yeah, she's basically like brushing up against Dominic. I'm not even sure. Like a cat <laughs> booping it with its head, you know? That's what I exactly <laughs> thought of when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, here. Why aren't you petting me? Yeah, right? <laughs> so then Steel comes up, forcefully grabs her. She bumps into Dominic, getting his attention. They launch into this argument. <laughs> Which is, you're not only through, you're finished. Gorgeous $500 suits, $5,000 Rolex, not to mention all the other bubbles I've bought you. And his, I didn't hear any complaints. Not enough to pay for you and your wife. She points at Mildred. (laughs) Dominic looks shocked. He's married to her. To her? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) here's here's a question. Okay. Is it a smart idea to have a fight this loud in public when he's a wanted man? Probably not. I mean, forget uh, her putting herself in too much danger. This is kind of dumb on his part. He's supposed to be laying low. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can just imagine the proprietor or somebody else calling, calling the cops the because there's a disturbance. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> feeds him the description, et cetera, et cetera. But no. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Blaine. <laughs> going back to the uh, argument, she says, don't kid yourself that you weren't all that good. And she just liked having something pretty to look at. He then calls her a lousy little tramp and slaps her, and she slaps him back. Are they actually hitting each other? You mean as they're filming it? 
No. No, I mean no, no I mean in like in character. Oh, in character. Are are Steel and Laura actually hitting each other? Well, I would presume that they have to to make it look real because with a with a camera on a set you can you can position the actors and the action and the camera in such a way that it gives the appearance. But when you're surrounded by people like that, no, you, you don't pull your punches. Well, but you it's, can't. I mean, you could, I, I worked like I had a, a bit of a, I, I took drama for years at an outside like drama. That explains um, so much. You're a center. drama queen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I relate very heavily to Mr. Sale, but like you can do a theater slap where you hold your hand against their face and hit them like this, and it looks they they recoil. And if you've done it from the right angle, it looks par- completely la- like real. He's but behind. See, that's them. again, that's the right angle, because in, in a stage situation, you know where the audience is, you know where you have to be to to sell it without looking faked. But like I said, they've got people all the way around them. They're in the middle True, of a dance floor. The only one they need to convince is Dominic, and he's behind them. So as long as they, as long as the, this is what's kind of bugging me too, because again, if they're going full James Bond, here they are hitting each other, both of them. And this just feels, they've never, they've staged fights before, but never physically violent ones. Mm -hmm. I mean, aside from her sort of swinging her purse at him and him ducking, right? This is... This you're is, you're this right, is, though, because they, they do only have to worry about Dominic, and, and as long as he's in the right position and they position themselves correctly, he, he wouldn't see it, and it doesn't matter if anybody else does. But And it's like, this is a really hard hit, like both of them. Yeah. But I think that they would probably, in character, still just let's sell it. All right. I don't know. That could be wrong. Dominic I was wrong gets once in- before. Yeah. <laughs> just once yeah that's all i'll admit to i already right, told you fine. this that's fine <laughs> dominic gets in between them punches steel throws him into the tables mildred goes <sighs> rushing over throws herself into her role as his wife coddling him more overacting, the most. More this, overacting. Is, this is her no this is her revenge this is revenge for his, oh, you oh. love it. You know, the, the stuff in the hotel, she is really, she's like, fine. I'm going to get my vengeance and it's going to look like this. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, that's what I think anyway. Okay. <laughs> so then Laura turns to Dominic and says, I suppose you want a reward for being my big, strong protector. Dominic asks if she was really keeping that guy, to which she replies, it's a lot more fun than collecting stamps. <laughs> she suggests that Dominic show her what she's got, what he's got, and then she will decide what he gets. They begin dancing, if that's what you can call it, and the ruse has worked, or so they think. So it seems, yes. Yeah, which again, the dancing is painful, but it, yeah, I don't know. That <laughs> Not you as could, painful as the music. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that you could sell it to that music. Like, what no. are they gonna do? <laughs> it just—it's terrible. It's painful. Yeah. Um, I, so I, she's I doing... really wish I know it's it's a it's a hassle from a technical standpoint, but yeah. I really wish when TV shows did scenes like this, they would actually do it instead of yeah. being out there dancing to total silence and then we'll just throw in some music later. It just never because well, she's got to look sensual. The point here is that she's she's using yeah. her, her wiles uh, to attract Dominic, and this 
does not scream sensual at all. No. And it's not <laughs> it's not Stephanie's fault. It's not it's not any it's the fault of the music. There's no way you could yeah. sell this with that music. No. So no. yeah. Um, <laughs> so then we've got a scene change. Mm-hmm. Steele and Mildred are watching Laura through binoculars. She's are on a boat. Is it binoculars or a camera? I think it's binoculars. Anyway. It's yeah, I'm pretty sure. She's on a boat with Dominic. He's rubbing suntan lotion onto her back. She's wearing a bathing suit that looks like it's painted on. And Steele is clearly jealous. He comments that she's thrown herself into the role. Mildred agrees she's hot, all right. And then he bitterly says, first she plays Gypsy Rose Lee for her former boyfriend, then Sadie Thompson with Dominic. But with me, she's Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Did these, okay, so first, are these references pinging for you? Because I did a bit of research. Um, the names are familiar. Okay. But. Well, not necessarily the Miss Sadie Thompson, but yeah, certainly Gypsy Rosalie. I'm familiar with the name Rebecca Sunnybrook. Rebecca of Sunnybrook. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. <laughs> I am familiar with by name. Yeah, uh, I've got a vague idea of what the, who who these characters are, who these people were, but no details. Okay, so Gypsy Rose Lee was a performer, like a burlesque style performer, which means she's com- mm-hmm. he's comparing her behavior with Wilson to her behavior with him, something he didn't begrudge her of during Vintage, but now seems jealous over, which, ew, is kind of not fair. Like, he was perfectly fine with... Remember how I commented? It's not that he's, about- he's, he's upset about her behavior or jealous of it. He's frustrated that she will present herself, present this part of herself, this version of herself to other people, but not let him. Well, fair, but I mean, they've already kind of covered why that was. And and again, but but that's his response. That's his emotional response. Fair. And I guess this is just that reset, right? We're, we're Uh doing that reset, but Sadie Thompson, this is the reference that kind of feels very out of character because Sadie Thompson is a fictional character, the protagonist of the short story Rain, which was written in 1921 by W. Somerset Maugham. I think it's pronounced. I'm not sure. Thompson okay. is a lighthearted American prostitute who plies her trade in the South Seas and causes the downfall of Reverend Mr. Davidson, a fanatical missionary. The short story was turned into a film, uh, Sadie Thompson with Gloria Swanson, and then another remake of it with Joan Crawford. And then one with Rita Hayworth. It's been remade a few times. But so essentially he's comparing her to a prostitute for doing her job, which is kind of crappy. Yeah, not not really a fair characterization. No. No, it isn't. I mean, I can I can see the Gypsy Rose Lee comparison. That one I get. I can be on board. In, in the that, sense but. that he is this is his emotional response to her. Obviously, it's not just that she was doing a strip tease as she had done in Acapulco. Now she's almost literally throwing herself at a man with, with the intention presumably of getting him into the sack. And, well, I don't think that she's going to do that. I don't well, think that she was no, but that's how she's him. presenting herself. That's yeah. how she's playing the character. And I think that's what he's responding to. Is it fair? I no. I, I I'll agree. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit out of line, but I think that's what he's responding to. And that's how he's, He's viewing it in his emotional frustration. Yeah, and like, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, Shirley Temple, 
Right. <laughs> like that's a Shirley Temple film. So he's he's ca- characterizing her as this almost frigid um and I get it. You're right. It is emotional. It's coming from an emotional place. Um Mildred astutely says maybe you frighten her. And he's like, yeah, that's what she says. But he kind of <sighs> sounds doubtful. And then Mildred, I yeah, I know, I know, I know. I thought that too. I'm like, oh no, it's a that's what she said joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's not what I was. I was going oh, going to go. Okay. Keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but keep going. But this no, no, is this I is. I've got a good one coming up here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, see, Mildred then goes on to say that he doesn't know what it's like to lust after a man down to her loins, but to be afraid of what that desire will unleash. She's a Charlotte and Knight s- fan. <laughs> yes. I thought that too. I thought that too. She's read the books and Steele knows cause he's read them all. Let's face it. He has read them all. <laughs> we know this already. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway. Uh. And Steele asks if she's speaking from personal experience, and Mildred laughs and says her ex-husband couldn't unleash the dog. Oof. <laughs> uh, he goes back to looking through the binoculars, not impressed, and Mildred reminds him that it's easy to let yourself go with someone you don't care about because there's no risk involved. And he res- responds that that's hollow consolation. Which, I, I mean, there is risk, but obviously not emotional risk. It's more physical, yeah. dangerous, you know. Yeah, uh, meanwhile, in this boat, case, but yeah. Laura gets up, wanders over to what looks like the bar. She begins running ice over her shoulders and making small talk. She says, nice boat. Whose is it? Mr. Dominic says that it's his. And she laughs and says, uh, it's not too many phone calls to arrange getting them on it. And to be fair, I think this, if, if, if it wasn't for the fact that we know their cover's already blown, I don't think she's that bad at this right now. She she presses a little bit too much, which I think could be a red flag, but this beginning part where she's like, nice boat, whose is it? And then yeah. he says, it's mine. And she laughs and she's like, uh, too many phone calls like that. Seems that light. Point, it seems fine. flirty. And then she goes a little too, she pushes it just a tad too far mm-hmm. by, by pressing for whose it was, whose boat it is. Um, and then he says it belongs to a friend. She says, "What? what's his name? And that's, I think, the point where it is. That's the red flag. Yeah. yeah. He says, but again, he already knows that her cover's right. already blown. But like. But if it wasn't, that yeah, would have been, a, that been one question too far. Yeah, because he, he comments, all you do is ask questions. She says, it adds to my allure, which I don't think so. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> At that point, he violently grabs her arm and asks her what she wants. She wrenches free of him and says, I thought I wanted you, but I've just changed my mind. And then she goes on to say she's not into pain or animals, no matter how sleek. And he seems mollified by this, tells her the name of the owner by the boat, Alexander Sebastian. She says that wasn't so hard, was it? And then playfully tells him she's taken off all her lotion and he needs to put on a fresh coat. (laughs) She walks away. I mean... Again, we know the cover was blown ahead of time, but if it wasn't, this this would have been... It's, it is now, yeah. Yeah. So, she goes up to the beach. She finds Steel in a hammock by a couple of horses with a fake mustache. I've got to know... <laughs> I mean, he's rented the horses, obviously, but uh, she tells him he looks, good. he looks good with a tan. He responds by saying, I'm surprised you don't have one yourself. You put so much lotion on you. I thought you were going to slither off the boat. Um <laughs> So she's a bit irritated that he was watching her, reminds him that that's Merkel's job and he's supposed to be watching Pepe's. 
He says nothing's going on there. She tells him the name of the owner of the boat, and they get on their horses. As they ride down the beach, she asks him to see what Mildred can dig up. Again, where? Where is Mildred doing the digging? I don't know, but she's got some contacts somewhere. Yeah, clearly. I mean, (laughs) so says he says, well, he's doing the watching and Mildred does the digging. What will she be doing? And she says, dancing. I've been invited to a party at Sebastian's villa. He's even more irritated by this, to which she comments that he's awfully testy. He tells her that she would be too if she had spent the morning sleeping on the beach, which again, he didn't have to do. He should have been watching Pepe's. (laughs) He warns her that anyone who can engineer a $250 million diamond heist can see through a high school rendition of The Temptress. And she says, might I remind you that I've been doing this longer and that you longer than you have and rides off on the horse. There it is. There's that ego and arrogance and that condescension that she does so well. But he's also jealous. So they are not. Well, that's true. But again, she's. Uh, well, I I agree. I understand that. Yeah. But beyond that, she's getting sound counsel. Agreed. And again, yeah. she's rejecting it just like yeah. she did earlier. And it's all because of her ego and who it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. It's partly ego and it's partly how he's saying it. The high school rendition of The Temptress, he lets us jealously slip with that line. He could just say... Might I remind you that anyone who can engineer a $250 million diamond heist and kill somebody already is extremely dangerous. Yeah. He's poking at what she's doing with Dominic because he's jealous. So I agree. Her ego is getting in the way. Definitely. 100%. But he's also, he's trying to warn but I her. Think that- it's, I think it's an apt comparison, though, because, I, I mean, I was in high school. I was in the orchestra for musicals uh, for three years running. Uh, I've seen. So you're some... a drama queen too. No, I'm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I play the accompaniment to the drama queens. Okay. But I. I mean, I've seen this kind of high school quality acting that he's talking about, and it's it's it may not be a nice comparison, but it is a legitimately fair comparison because. Obviously, Laura's acting skills haven't progressed beyond the high school level. Well, again, up until the point where she pressed a little too hard. If, she was doing if fine. Yeah. If their cover wasn't already blown, he was he was into it. He was. Yeah. But but then her comment about uh, it's part of my. It's one of those things. <laughs> and oh, I've. I've wa- yeah. You know, that taken part. All my all my suntan lotion off. You're going to have to put it on me. Again. It's just. <laughs> mm, yeah. I don't know. I, if he were really into her, he might not have minded that, right? It, it's yeah, it's one of those things where he knows what she's doing, so it's not working. Yeah. But And can I also throw in that this is a kind of a backdoor reference to another movie? Oh, what's that? The Temptress with Greta Garbo, Antonio yeah. Moreno, Mark McDermott, Lionel Barrymore, MGM 1926. It's a silent movie. Oh, there we go. <laughs> hey. I didn't catch that one. So even when we don't have movie <laughs> references, we have movie references. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we get this scene change. Laura is in a white dress and a, this hideous headband. Why? Why? I don't understand the point of the headband. It just, sorry, tangent, but it's awful. The rest of the outfit is decent. Why? Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> she's talking to Sebastian. She tells him the house is beautiful. Asks how long he's been here. He says about 10 years. 
And she uses this opening to say, oh, then you must remember Pepe's. And he says he was hardly an habitué. And she asked what happened to it. Uh, he says, like all things, people got bored. They went on to other diversions. And she asks if he knows it's been sold, and he reveals that he bought it. All of this, to me, This is works. a great scene for Laura. This, this is, is a good. great scene for Laura yeah. because, uh, again, she's just – I think this is, again, one of those impromptu, in-the-moment uh, improvisations and not something that she has planned and plotted out. And it's just – it's a comfortable conversation that she's having that really fits yeah. the character of the situation. And it's the kind of small talk that would come up, right? Like, how long have you yeah. been here? Oh, you must remember this nightclub I used to go to. What happened to yeah. it? You know, who bought it? And maybe you were um, there the night I did my little fan dance. Yeah, did you see the girl with the fan dance? That was me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's it, it works. This part works. Mm-hmm. Again, their cover's already blown, but if it hadn't been, this this possibly would have would have worked, right? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Dominic comes over. Gently teases Alexander about beating his time, flirts with Laura, hands her a drink, invites her to Chicago, and then she she drinks from it, says she's going to mull it over, and then she gets woozy. Something in the drink hits her. She Yeah, she's not, she's been roofied. Woozy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry. Just being That's silly. That's okay. I like your sound effects. <laughs> But yeah, she's been roofied. Uh, Sebastian suggests she lie down in one of the rooms. Dominic carries her there. She's barely conscious, asking him to go back to the hotel. But he tells her she can't go anywhere, puts her on the bed. So yeah, he takes off her shoes, which take a lot of work because they're wrapped up. <laughs> I, again, I like the shoes, but yeah, they're, <sighs> they're... So he goes back to Sebastian, who asks how she is. Dominic says she's sick as a dog, and Sebastian says, first we move the merchandise, then we dispose of her. Right, so... Why do you think he wants to dispose of Laura when he warned Dominic that it could attract attention if they knock anybody off? Like suddenly he's yeah saying let's um, murder this woman. They haven't killed Peggy. Peggy's still there. I, I was I was gonna I was gonna go to that. Um, it, it does seem like he's been kind of saving them up so he can do them all at once. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's efficiency. It's you know, a two for one. It's Bogo. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the coupon. <laughs> I knew they were coupon clippers. They just seem like the type. <laughs> uh, well, you know, maybe it's one of those situations where they've got to do something, and this is the least bad choice of what's available to them. You know, well, okay, you you, you were careless and sloppy, and when you got rid of Pedro, it was a sloppy way to do it. And that drew too much attention because of everything that was going on. But, you know, we've got her now and okay. Yeah. We don't want to get rid of her, but we don't have a choice because if we let her go, it's even worse than if we get rid of her. So yeah. In for a penny, in for a pound. (laughs) Hey, you know, last couple of times I use that phrase. I've wondered how many people understand that. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, um, Mildred running on the beach back to Steele reports that Laura's not in her room. The bed looks like it hasn't been slept in. Steele is furious at Merkel, who's supposed to be watching her. Of course, we know Merkel is <laughs> yeah. going to let things happen. So he says he's going to oh, yeah. go to Sebastian's, and Mildred offers to watch Pepe's. 
He comments that Mildred really does have a flair for this sort of thing. And you can tell Mildred is thrilled to hear this. Um, he asks, he says, if Laura returns to chastise her, um, also <laughs> he's wearing, speaking of things that are hideous, that sweatsuit is so 80s it hurts, but in like not a good way. Like that is the most hideous sweatsuit I have ever seen. I well. don't know what he was thinking. Plus it's Mexico. Wouldn't he be warm in that? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's 80s TV hip. Uh, it's 80s TV hurt. <laughs> yeah, but no, you're right. I mean, that he is clearly overdressed for what we see as the weather that's being presented. Yeah, here. you think? It's a, even, <laughs> even in the winter, Mexico is going to be warm. Yeah. But if this is taking place in the summer, he would just be, He'd be dying, dying of that. heat stroke. It looks like it's made out of terry cloth. Yeah, something something like that. Yeah, it, it, it's not. Yeah, it, it's it doesn't breathe well. It's not a choice. It's a choice, but it's not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> he scales the wall, creeps into the bedroom of Sebastian's villa, finds her shoes, but not her. And when he returns to Mildred, she reports lots of people moving in and out of Pepe's. He stands up and says, "There comes a time in every case that calls for swift and decisive action." Mildred says, "What are you going to do?" Damn it if I know. So, which is good. I'm going to um, do something. Don't know what it is, but it's something. Uh, Mildred watches as he goes and gets what turns out to be Paris parasailing. Is that mm -hmm. what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Tells her, she tells him that the plan is total brilliance, sheer daring, inspired, says only he would think of it. And then it's like something out of a James Bond movie. Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> Yeah. The subtext has become text. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. Well, at so, least it's not another boat chase. Like they, I mean, how many times have they done boat true. chases in Bond movies? It's like, like there was a whole series of of Bond movies, like four or so in a oh, row. Oh yeah, there's been a every lot. Every one of them had a boat chase. It's I like, gotta guys, say, though, come up with something new. My absolute favorite chase scene in in any Bond movie was Timothy Dalton when he's uh, skiing down with the cello. And he, he goes through like the, the border from one, like, one country to another, whatever. And they say anything to declare. And he's like, just the cello as he's like, coming down on the. I, I think I remember that. Yeah. I think <laughs> I remember that. I, I'm, I'm yeah. sure I watched it because my wife and I are up into the Brosnan bonds. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. You would have uh, seen it then. And we've been going through it in sequence. And, so. and that includes the. <laughs> we, we even saw the original. Well, not the original, original, but the original casino royale oh, yeah. Yeah, movie the, with david niven yeah and yeah. i do have and we haven't watched it yet the was it like the 1954 version of casino royale that was done as a tv play it's yep. like a, a one hour tv play yeah so <laughs> so we know our bond bond would yeah. not wear that sweatsuit though bond would no just no saying. bond um. would not be caught dead in that sweatsuit no he would not or no that would be the only way he would be caught in that sweatsuit <laughs> yeah exactly he has his limits mr bond <laughs> you will put on the sweatsuit <laughs> over my dead body <laughs> that's by connery that could be arranged in fact mr bond <laughs> that's the plan <laughs> Do you expect me to dress like this, Goldfinger? <laughs> no, Mister. Anyway, um, so I expect he... you to die. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. We accept donations for that performance. Um, 
<laughs> really, they're paying us to stop, but whatever. Um, <laughs> hey, so anyway, they send us monies. I'm for it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so he gets everything ready. Mildred continues saying that she has led a dull drab life up until this point with all the adding and subtracting number columns. And she claims she just has a flair for drudgery. Once mm-hmm. he's ready to go, he says, now you're sure you've operated one of these before. And poor Mildred looks like a child who's been caught in a lie. <laughs> Mildred, say something. <laughs> say something. Anything. Lie if the moment calls for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when she says we used to have a little putt-putt. So I guess that's good enough for him because he tells her to take it out several hundred yards <laughs> and head towards Pepe's. And when they get there to cut the rope, his parachute is rainbow colored. Is this the most conspicuous choice? Like, could he find a more like visible you know, way to do this? It might actually, I, I've got questions about the whole drop into the nightclub compound, compound scene yeah. because he would have been seen coming down. Oh yeah. But in terms of the parasail, it might actually work up to that point where he's actually dropping in and somebody should have looked up and noticed him. Yeah, coming down. Somebody, well, because they have cameras too. Yeah. But most parasails that you're going to see, uh, you know, it's like it's like kites. People have highly decorative, highly colored, sure. brightly colored yeah. kites. And I'm sure that parasails are, are much the same way. And it might be more obvious if he didn't go with something so obvious. That's if, true. Do you understand yeah. my twisted logic? Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And, I mean, he conveniently, he gets up there. Mildred cuts the rope. He conveniently drops down onto a security guard. Yeah. Apparently their cameras are just not working at the moment. Um, yeah. And he and, and they is, never look around. They don't look up no, in the sky to see. No. You know, they they never heard an airplane flying over at any time during the day. They, oh, oh, oh! And what's this guy doing? Yeah, no, none of that. Yeah, <laughs> and not this is his James Bond audition. This is the the theme mm-hmm. is playing. He's running oh, around yeah. knocking people out. It, it, he's well. He didn't pick up their guns. No, okay, granted, that's true. granted that's true. he doesn't like guns, so no. I can understand he wouldn't necessarily take one for himself, but at least take them away from the guards right? so they can't like use he them on you. He them out and leaves them there, and then, of course, he finds Laura. She's, she's uh, still kind of out, and Peggy's there as well. They're both on the floor unconscious, and they, they kind of just kind of left them on the floor. I, yeah. I'm wondering, I is mean, there a more go? secure place to put them? Like an office or something? He, they just kind of, anyway. He gently wakes Laura up, who mumbles, what took you so long, Carrie, which is kind of funny. Um, and he starts to wake up Peggy when she hears a guard coming, motions for him to hide. He does. She pretends to be asleep again as the guard comes up the stairs. He watches as he pulls a silencer on a gun, which I'm wondering why bother. They're in like some I compound. Don't, don't, don't even get me started <laughs> on that conversation because it is absolutely Hollywood insanity. Yeah. <sighs> Well, first of all, it's not a silencer. It's a suppressor. Okay. It doesn't silence. You know, everybody's talking about, well, with a silencer, you can kill people and nobody will hear it. No, you're going to hear it. It's like the difference between standing 50 yards from an, a jet engine and standing 100 yards from a jet engine. All it does is it it reduces the the initial crack of that bullet as it moves from subsonic into supersonic. There's a small sonic boom and that's the the loud crack that these things suppress and i'm sorry there's only been i think maybe one model of revolver that could effectively use a silencer 
And that ain't it. <laughs> okay. I'm to be fair. I'm Canadian. The closest I get to a gun is a water right. pistol. I understand. So I understand. <laughs> and, and and you have to have a permit for those too, probably. So, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to let people know when you're transporting them from one playground to the. It's a whole thing, right. right? So, yeah. Um, so you're not wrong. It's there are a lot of rules around where how and how you can transport and when you can transport and yeah. paperwork, etc. So, I am the kind of person that is the perfect audience for this because I know yeah. absolutely nothing, and I'm just. <laughs> going to be like, cool, he's got a silencer. It works for me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a conveniently placed bottle behind steel on the floor, mm-hmm. which he knocks over. Yes. Which the noise distracts. Over. Yeah, yeah. The noise distracts the guard long enough for Laura to kick him in the back of the legs and steel to punch him. And he finally, he shakes his hand complaining. It's beginning to hurt, which is more like his regular self. And less like mm-hmm. the super spy he's been this whole episode. They pick right. up Peggy, who for some reason is still unconscious. Why is Laura wide awake and perfectly alert now and Peggy is still out cold? Did they dose her again? Has, she's been there longer. They may have been continually dosing her. And yeah, maybe. Laura's dose had been uh, administered earlier than Peggy's. So Peggy is still yeah. under the influence. Yeah, it's true. They get to the wall where Mildred's been running around, hopping, looking for a sign of them. <laughs> now, would Laura, after Works having funny. hopped down with Steele standing there holding Peggy, would she engage Mildred in, I'll use the term, girl talk? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they seem pretty buddy-buddy now with Mildred, so who knows? Well, yeah, but I mean, th- shouldn't there be a sense of urgency? Okay, I'm down now. Uh, you need me, to yeah. you hand think. her down so you can get down? Yeah. No, you it's just think. like, oh, hi, Mildred. How you doing? Oh, great. How you doing? Hey, oh, that's a very oh, nice cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Nice dress. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah, doing your hair. Yeah, Steele is the one that interrupts and comments on how yeah. Peggy might seem svelte, but she's dead white at the moment. Yep. So they help her over the wall. He hops down. Uh, he says he didn't see anything resembling diamonds, and Mildred astutely suggests that they might be moving them somewhere else. Laura comments that Dominic had mentioned going to Chicago, and Steele says he's hardly going to take off with an overnight bag with $250 million worth of diamonds. But that's then when they, it's then when they see Alexander Sebastian's boat leave, and Steele mm-hmm. takes off running. Laura just yep. hands Peggy to Mildred, tells her to call Captain Rios, and takes off after Steele. He hops into a boat with the name Playgirls. Did you notice that? Uh, I probably did, yeah. But yeah, I didn't and, <laughs> put it in my notes. And comments on having never seen him so... She comments on having never seen him so possessed with a sense of justice before. He says... he, he Forget makes the sense of justice. It. I He's want my finder's fee. <laughs> finder's fee, Yeah. Is it just the finder's fee, or is there some anger here at what they might have done to Laura? Finder I mean, I'd fee. hope. I, ah, that seems rather callous, doesn't it? That he that he's just. Well, she's like, okay. okay. She's okay. I, I mean, suppose, it's like, but it's it's like when somebody gets in a car accident. Are you okay? Yeah. How's the car? Well, yeah, we, okay, we've already fair. settled that you're okay. <laughs> That's we don't fair. need to dwell on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we need true. to find out the information. <laughs> okay, so here's where I'm going to point out the double standard that he okay. exhibits. Because he commented about Laura putting herself in danger by pursuing Dominic. But he then seems to think it's safe to go after a man like Sebastian with literally no weapons? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to double standardville. Population, you. 
<laughs> like, well, and you know, again, <laughs> even back in the compound, he was he was going to take him on with no weapons. Yeah, he was knocking he guys out left and right and leaving weapons laying yeah, around leaving where they outside. could pick they could pick <laughs> them up and use them on him again. At, like I said, at least get him out of their reach, but ideally grab one and carry it with you because you I mean, look at the people you're sure. dealing with. You may dislike guns, but it might be pretty handy to have one right about now. To be fair, he's kind of perfected the TV knockout punch where you hit somebody once and they just drop and never give up, get up until the script yeah. calls for it. So, you know, he's got that going for him. Yeah. <laughs> so they catch the yeah. boat, they pull up alongside it, they creep along the sides of the boat until they find Sebastian. Steel motions for Laura to go up, she does, and while up top, she throws what looks to be a tarp over the window, causing Sebastian to come outside and Steel to punch him in the face. He mm -hmm. checks Sebastian, finds him unarmed. This is the first time he does check for a weapon. And why is he wanting the weapon? Because he needs to have a weapon yeah, right now. Because he recognizes that you it's had, necessary. <laughs> you had the chance to get all these weapons before, and yeah, you didn't take it. And now you. <laughs> it's a good point. All of those guards, he just left them yeah. there. <laughs> and then he points out that they would be wonderful targets if they barged in unarmed. And mm -hmm. my exact comment was, shouldn't they have thought of that before getting on the boat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Might have been a thought. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so then he asks, here's another movie reference, is she seeing Key, Lar Key Largo? And mm -hmm. Laura says the last movie almost cost her her life. And this he is the movie reference, not the song. Yeah, no, well, there isn't. There's, I think, are you thinking of Kokomo? No. Is there a song called Key Largo? Key Largo by Bertie Higgins. I did not know that. Yeah. It was a big hit back in the <laughs> 80s. Yeah. Pretty sure it's a movie reference, though, because she says the last yeah. movie cost yeah. me, almost cost me, cost yeah. me my life. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, in case somebody was confused, yeah, it's not true. the song. We could put links to the song in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. Uh, Steel persists and tells her that in the movie, Bogart is in the same predicament with a bunch of armed killers down below. He tells her he made them seasick, and when they came up, popped them off one by one. He hands Laura a, a weird stick, and then and then. <laughs> And then says, she says she liked it better than Doris. <laughs> yeah. I would think she'd need a better, bigger stick, but yeah. whatever. Um, that's just me. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just, when you say that. Yeah. Walks awfully, carry a That's what stick. she said. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine. <laughs> you just, you get that one. You get that one. That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> After that, you're fired. <laughs> So, yeah, no, they get behind the wheel, or sorry, Steel gets behind the wheel, starts turning the boat in circles. Eventually, Dominic comes up, Laura knocks him out, and as she's dragging his body out of the way, this is where Merkel finally pops up with a gun aimed at her. He sneaks up behind her, grabs her, telling, that, telling her that if she says one word, parts of her will end up in Hawaii. Um, she asks where the real Inspector Merkel is, and he says somewhere in a lime pit. Then instructs her to yep. Time out. Okay. Time out. All right. This is where... <laughs> is this where I learned something about lime pits? No, no, no. Okay. This is where I start expressing real <laughs> questions. Um, you remember back in oh, the this boring is the part. scene? Okay, I get you. He pulled, out his, he pulled out an ID wallet and tosses it to Laura. The ID yes. is for Jack Merkel, Inspector yep. United States Customs. It would have had a photograph on it. It would have. You so, are absolutely correct. Yep. So where did he get a counterfeit in Mexico with his photograph on it that was good enough that it would pass? 
And then he says, well, I talked to the organized crime boys. That sounds kind of legitimate because he does have information for them about Sebastian that he would have picked. He could probably only have picked up from the organized crime boys. But when he called in as Merkel, when somebody have that that doesn't sound like Merkel. I mean, there's there's just so many questions. There's so many questions. It's just, um, hmm. Yeah. How did you manage to pull this all off on such short notice? Because the real inspector is in a lime pit in Mexico. This didn't happen while he was in the United States where he would have had access probably to much better forges. He didn't didn't pre-plan it. You're right. He didn't pre-plan it. So, Um, a lot of questions. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where this bit feels a bit like an afterthought, like they needed to mastermind. Question. And, yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so he, Laura yell tell he basically says to her to tell Steele it's all clear. Laura yells the instructions to Steele, adding, "Don't forget Ingrid." When Merkel yeah. asks who is that, she says the one we call Mildred. Her real name is Ingrid. Uh, Merkel comments on how they're all a bunch of phonies and Laura says that they can't hold a candle to him and it's awfully clever having them infiltrate the people who work for him and he tells her that the diamonds are in the fuel tanks and that they're bound for Puerto Vallarta to set up shop. Uh, Can I ask a question about that line about awfully clever to have them infiltrate the people that work for him? Yeah, why would he need them to do that? Does this mean that he's the head of the smuggling operation? Yeah, that's what I got from it. Or... Is it that Sebastian and Dominic worked for him in the sense that he had hired them to smuggle his diamonds across the border? That one doesn't seem as reasonable no. to me. It's It seems more like he's saying that he's the head of the organization. I think he but, is. But yeah. if that's the case, I mean, that could explain how he knew that Dominic was in San Diego when Hector's tin of boat was docked, which which would cover the, I called, you know, organized crime boys. Yeah. That would cover that. But it still doesn't address the issue of the photo ID. No, it anyway, doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, that's just another yeah. line that, that raised questions in my mind as to what what are they saying here? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, but her don't forget Ingrid line works yes. because Steel jumps down onto Merkel and they wrestle. Laura uh-huh. grabs this, this magic stick that seems to knock everybody out, knocks them out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Steele asks about Merkel being in on it too and Laura says that it wasn't Merkel, he just assumed his identity and Steele makes a crack about it being a cheap shoddy thing to do to assume someone else's identity. (laughs) 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 Which is that's cute. I like that one. (laughs) Uh, They hear a horn and they turn to see a boat approaching it's Captain Rios. Laura tells Steele to turn the diamonds over to Rios and he becomes nearly apoplectic and repeats (laughs) 20 Five million, million dollars. And Laura points out that Steele could go to jail if Rios isn't sympathetic. And mm-hmm. then he says, sometimes I find the straight and narrow very confining. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is a cute poor Steele. He never gets his finder's fee. <laughs> no. This is the beginning of a long string of lost finder's fees. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, so then we get this scene change. He, I have a question here. Mildred, we get the same scene of their shot of Mildred marching down to the office. She's wearing the same outfit she wore the first time. Why? Well, she's <laughs> back at the IRS finishing yeah, up she, her job and that's her IRS I, going to work clothes. <laughs> she's got to have more than one dress though. 
Like, yeah, but they're all the same. <laughs> she bought a whole new wardrobe in Mexico. She could mix it up a bit. <laughs> I, Mildred Krebs, IRS agent, has one uniform. One red dress. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the office is once again filled with secretaries. Steele and Laura are interviewing someone. Mildred basically kicks her out of the office on official yeah. IRS business. <laughs> she tells them that she figured out a way to get them off the hook with the IRS. She tells IRS, sorry. She tells them to file an amended return to which they will eat the penalties and interest. But they are all square with Uncle Sam. Okay, so here's my Canada again. Okay. Um, would that work? Because like here in Canada, once you catch up on your taxes, you just pay whatever you owe. Like you don't, you don't actually have to, I, like I said before, I know people who have gone 10 years without paying their taxes. They don't get in trouble for it. They just, when they finally do file them, uh, Canada revenue is like, okay, you owe us this much or Canada revenue, Canada revenue ends up owing them money. But either way, like nobody comes after you for it. It's just kind of like, here's what you owe us. So would this well, theoretically work for him? Well, you, you got to understand that he's paying all the taxes that they owe. Right. Paying well, the interest <laughs> on that. Well, yeah. Paying the interest on the taxes that, that he owes and paying penalties for not having paid the taxes that he owed. So oh, see, this, this isn't just, okay, you owe us $1,000. <laughs> no, it's you owe us $1,000 and then there's $800 in interest and a $2,000 in penalties. So, I mean, they just stack it up, stack it up, stack it up. I, I oh. once had a traffic ticket that was like $100. And by the time they got done adding on the administrative fee, the fee for accepting the payment, the fee for processing Jesus. the payment and all this other stuff, it was it was over $200 on a $100 ticket. They don't. Yeah. They, they just, we've got you. That's crazy. By the cojones. And, and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to squeeze as hard as we can until you start screaming. Because See here again, you go ten years without paying your taxes. You don't pay anything extra than what you owe. You just pay what you owe. No, 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 no. There's no interest. Fact, There's down no penalties. Here, There's no. <laughs> down here, we also have jails. Supposedly, yeah, we don't have debtors' prison, but yeah, you get me. You you owe the IRS wow. a lot of money, and they think that you are deliberately ev evading taxes, trying to avoid paying them illegally. Yeah, they'll they'll throw you in jail, wow. as well as make you pay That's the back crazy. taxes and the penalties and the interest. Yes. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew the student loan situation to America. Was, was interesting because like here again with student loans, like you just pay back your loan and it's owned by the federal government. Nobody sells your loan to other companies or mm -hmm. adds compound interest or anything. Well, there's interest, but it's it's just like it's owned by the government and you pay the government and that's how it works. But yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently it's all square. Uh, either way, he just yeah. has to pay a lot of money. Or, yeah. Well, let's face it, Laura has to pay a lot of money. Yeah. Um, the agency. <laughs> yeah. And Mildred says it's her last official act with the IRS. She was discharged with dereliction of duty for staying too long in Mexico. Laura apologizes, saying it was basically their fault. Not basically, Laura. It was her fault. <laughs> I mean, yes, well, she I mean, went I mean, down there, but he knocked her out. <laughs> there's the part. That wasn't her, Laura's fault and Steele's fault yeah. is when Mildred went and followed Steele down to Mexico. But yeah, that's the yeah. one thing that they did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Mildred then, this is cute, moves over to Laura and says, you know that job you offered me? 
I know it was to get me to go easy on you. And then Laura reassures her that she was very helpful in the case. And Mildred says, I'm not very good at begging. I could grovel a little. And she gives the <laughs> cutest little pout. And here's where I'm so like. good. It's so, so good. good. But he, this is interesting because if they had hired the type of actress that they wanted, someone who was a little older but still was like kind of sexy in order to like do whatever this love triangle was, that little pout would have come across. She'd be doing it at Steel, first of all, not to Laura. Yes. And it would be uh, sort of sexually manipulative. But here it's just yes. adorable. It's Mildred giving this, I'm not good at begging. <laughs> and you just yeah, can't you know, resist it. <laughs> if if I'm going to forgive them for getting rid of Murphy and Bernice, yeah, I yeah. it's so it's it was so good that Michael Gleason got painted into a corner. Yes, with yes. Doris Roberts because She's if brilliant. it hadn't have been, it would have totally it would have been totally different. It, I don't think it would have worked. No, I don't think so either. It would have been too safe. Yeah. It would have been too safe. This show is best when it's not safe, when it's doing things that we don't expect. And this is this is something we don't expect. And Mildred is just, she is a blowtorch in the middle of a room yeah. full of paper. Yeah. And she is, <laughs> she's just, she's just, it's funny because you've got two actors who are, good at comedy you've got stephanie mm-hmm. you've got pierce both of which can hold their own when it comes to comedic situations and then you add this dynamo of doris roberts to the equation who is also brilliantly comedic in certain ways in a different way yeah in a different way right they're, they're all yeah. they're all funny in their own very very different ways laura's got the straight man bit steel has that drama queen Mm-hmm. grandiose over the top thing that he does and then mildred's got this i don't i don't even know what to call it but it's just perfect for her it's <laughs> it's great per- the 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 perplexed fish out of water yeah yeah that's exactly clueless what clueless <laughs> not really not even really Keeping up enough to to try and get a clue, but yeah, it's it's perfect. She's she's, yeah. They they would have made a mistake, a huge mistake, if they had gone with anybody else other than her. No, I totally agree. And I mean, she brings this whole new dynamic, and she makes us. It, I don't want to say she makes us forget Murphy and Bernice, but she she kind of does in a way. Like we we don't feel when we're watching this episode like we're missing them. I mean, I, I wish they had done more in the way of their absence instead of just a couple of throw away mm-hmm. lines of, Oh, she ran off with a saxophone player and he's off in Denver, but she fits into this show. Like she's been there forever. Yeah. The, the one, one negative I will say about her presence is that it does highlight their shameful neglect of Murphy and Bernice yes, during season one, because they could have used those two characters to provide some of the same interaction, some of the same, yeah. counterpoint yeah. to Steele and Laura that Mildred does. It would have been different. It yeah. would have, it would it would have had a different tone to it, but they still could have used them in Well, in all likelihood if they still had Murphy and Bernice, Murphy would have been if Murphy had stayed back in in LA, she would be able to call him and say, "Hey, can you dig up right. this this the, here's this license plate? Mm-hmm. Can you dig up with which actually would have made some more sense than Mildred yeah. did some digging and she came up with this. Okay. Yeah. How? Um, but 
I will say it's kind of like, I, I don't remember if you watch Doctor Who or not, but when they replace an actor playing the Doctor, he regenerates and turns into someone else. Um, this kind of made me think of the like the, the ninth Doctor was the first Doctor that they had since rebooting the series, and he immediately became a fan favorite. Everybody loved him. And he only wanted to do the one season, so it was going to be really hard to top him. And when he regenerated, he regenerated into David Tennant. And it was one of those moments where everybody was devastated over the loss of the ninth Doctor, but then the minute Tennant stepped on the screen and made the role his, everyone was like, fine, okay, I'm in. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm buying in. So this makes me think of that same kind of comparison, right? We're, we're sorry to see Murphy and Bernice go. We wish they had done better with them. But the second Mildred comes on the scene, we're just like, okay, I'm in. Sign me yep. up. I'm in, you yep. know, Dor- Doris Roberts land. Sure. I'm, I'm in. I'm done. You know, I'm yeah. down for it. Yep. So, yeah, Mildred, Laura agrees. She says, I think it would be wonderful for all concerned. She says, what do you think to Steele, who wasn't paying attention? He hands her the paper and says, I think it's outrageous. I wouldn't pay this if I were you. Um, and then she hands it back. And I think this is a, a bit of a slip on his part because obviously he's the one yeah. that's supposed to be paying it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she hands it back to him and says, I'm not going to, Mr. Steele. And we get credits. Yeah. Um, why do you think, last bit, well, last question here. Why do you think Laura hired Mildred after all? Was it because she was useful on the case or because she thought it might be good to have someone who had once worked for the government on their side? Probably both. Probably some of both. <laughs> That's fair. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, but also, if Mildred had managed to dig up this information that she supposedly had, true, it would she show has that she was useful. proven that she yes, very useful yeah. at doing those tedious drudgeries that most other people hate. Autopsy reports. You know? Yes, <laughs> yes. She she would she relish those. Yeah, she, she would relish them. those. <laughs> True. So, and she does. She says, "I have a flair for drudgery." So, mm-hmm. I guess this is the this is the perfect fit in that sense because it gives her that jolt of excitement that she wants. But it, they're also getting her to do the legworky things that aren't as exciting for us, the viewers, to watch. Right. So that's yeah. Mildred's job. I just kind of wonder what it would have been like to have Mildred and Murphy working for the agency at the same oh, time. They would have him they knowing that Steel is a fake. Her fawning over steel yeah oh it would have driven him nuts it would have driven him around the bend it would have been great (laughs) because i mean laura obviously has that situation yeah with mildred but murphy would have been in in a slightly different corner of that situation because he's got to balance his knowledge of what's going on against her lack of knowledge and Resist his urge to get those zingers in. Yeah, that would make no <laughs> sense to her, and might raise too many questions that they don't want to, you know, ask. Yeah, it, it could have been interesting. The mantle of Remington Steel. All right, fan fiction authors, there you go. Yeah, there, there it is. Yeah, what if Murphy had stayed? How would they have gotten along? Um, so, so yeah, and I mean, this is our. I think this is it. This is credits, right? Yes. Um, yes. Overall, as a season opener, what are our thoughts? Just, I think in general. obviously we've we've discussed some issues with the script as far as some I'll say plot holes. Yeah, but setting those aside, I think it was a good solid premiere. Uh, I think they leaned a little too heavily into the James Bond slash yeah. Jewel of the Nile type thing, um, yeah. romancing the stone thing, and unfortunately, that's something that is going to keep coming back to haunt us, but. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think it was a good one. I just you know, as as we kind of talked about, it it changed the nature of the characters and their yeah. relationship too much in the wrong direction. And- and some. the problem is they haven't done that. Like when they did the the um, North by Northwest themed episode or the mm-hmm. Sting themed episode or whatever, they were able to keep the characters, the characterizations Consistent. intact. Yeah. And so I think that's my only complaint is that they, when they lean so heavily on the James Bond aesthetic, they actually changed the character in order yeah. to fit. Like we want characters, him to be more Bond. So he's less goofy, less, less silly, fine. But also he's hitting women. And we want her to be his his the Bond girl, so we're going to make her less competent. And yeah. that's, yeah, I didn't love that. But I, I agree it was a solid opener. I love the fact that they were very clear on this is a new season. This is, we're, we're, we're going to be shinier. We're going to be flashier. We're going to do some location shooting. We've got Mildred, who's now, in, you know, in the works. And they've definitely upped their game a bit in terms of what the kind of stories that they're willing to tell. So yeah, the production I, values. Yeah. yeah. The production values are there. It's good. It was, I, I don't, I don't hate, I hope people don't think we hate this because I don't think I hate this no, episode no. at all. I, I genuinely enjoy it. There's, there's some great moments in this one. I, there's just a couple ones where I, I also don't love. So overall, yep. I think it's a solid, a solid first episode for, to start the season off. Yep. Um, and next episode, ooh, Biggie. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's a fan. Hey, you got this one. Ha ha ha. No yeah, pressure. I know. No pressure. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I had vintage. You get Red Holt Steel. So there we yeah. go. <laughs> oh. One of my absolute favorites. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. So any other thoughts? If not, I'll I'll say yeah. that uh, on our website. Let's call it done. Don't, yeah, www.steelwatching.com. You'll find show notes, links to Amazon US and Canada, merch, as well as all of the, any any other show notes that we that we have. Also social media resources and links such as? The official Steel Watching Facebook page, the official Twitter and Instagram pages that we have. And then also the Steel Watchers fan group, which is not an official affiliate of our podcast, but it kind of is. It's the unofficial official affiliate. <laughs> yes, we've we've called we've adopted them. Or they uh, adopted the, the, us. Well, I was going to say I'm not sure it's going to work the other way around. But <laughs> it might be some Stockholm syndrome. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, we can't so. get out. Uh, the other thing I wanted to give is just a quick shout out to I've mentioned them before, but the the podcast area fifty one and a half who uh, that it's a general pop culture, science fiction, fantasy podcast. And they recently did a live uh, podcast at a local Comic-Con where they gave us a shout out. So uh, I wanted to give them a shout out. They did uh, their podcast, their live podcast that they did was actually on podcasting and how to get started and um, what sorts of programs and software and things like that. So people had some questions. It was a bit of a Q and a session and it was, it was good. So just wanted to kind of throw that shout out back because they're doing some good stuff over there. And we'll have a link to their podcast yep. or their website. We'll, we'll send yeah, you to their website, website where you can subscribe with whatever device you have, whether it be an Apple device or uh, an Android device or a yeah. smoke signals. 
<laughs> and I it's guess possible. that's us. <laughs> yeah. All See right. See you next time. Yes. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Eric and Sarah here. Just a quick announcement to let you know that, yes, we do appreciate everyone who listens, participates, and supports the podcast in whatever way you do. But we wanted to give an extra thank you to those who are so graciously giving to be monthly financial supporters. We are making live streams of our recording sessions available to anyone who is a monthly financial supporter. So not only can you watch us live as we record our podcast episodes, you will be getting access to the raw, behind-the-scenes, unedited version of episodes before they get officially released. And Sarah, does that include our mistakes and screw-ups and our humiliating? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Every single one of them. (laughs) Every single one of them, yes. So again, this is just an extra thank you to those who are going above and beyond. But whether you choose to become a monthly financial supporter or not, we still love you. We want to say we thank you for your support, your encouragement, and your feedback. If you want to become a monthly financial supporter, please visit our website at www.steelwatching.com to sign up.